Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello! We have been quite immersed in early American politics over here at the History Chicks. Martha Washington and Ona Judge and Beckett and I just got back from our field trip to Washington, D.C. Colonial America is great, but we thought this was a good time to revisit a later American presidency. So we've gone in the Wayback Machine and combined our two episodes on Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis into one mega episode. Just imagine that echoey thing. It goes there. Don't be daunted by the length. Like every show we do, it's broken into chapter-like segments, just like an audiobook. We'll be back next time with an all-new episode. But now, on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. She was the aspirational lifestyle icon of her time. But behind the scenes, her life in Camelot was, perhaps, not quite as glorious as it has always been marketed to be. The end. Let's talk about Jackie Kennedy. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1929, Mother Teresa arrived in Calcutta to begin her India mission. Both Buck Rogers and Popeye debuted in the comic strips. Vatican City became a sovereign nation. JCPenney became the first department store to have stores in all 48 states. Black Thursday and Black Tuesday's stock market crashes triggered the Great Depression. And she shared a birth year with Martin Luther King, Audrey Hepburn, Liz Claiborne, Anne Frank, Imelda Marcos, Bob Newhart, Arnold Palmer, Barbara Walters, Grace Kelly, June Carter Cash, Barry Gordy, Dick Clark, and Christopher Plummer. Jacqueline Lee Bouvier was born on July 28, 1929, in Long Island, New York, and she was the first of the two daughters of John Vernou Bouvier III and Janet Norton Lee. She was born in Southampton, and you think, Southampton, is that part of the famous exclusive pricey summer resort Hamptons? Yes, it is. There's a series of little villages that make up this extremely pricey resort area now. But back then, it was just an up-and-coming summer area that was surrounded by potato farms. That's very romantical. I know, isn't it? (laughs) So Papa, who was always called Jack and sometimes called Black Jack because of his fabulous tan complexion. I want you, in your mind, to think of Rhett Butler. This is pre-Rhett Butler, but he might as well be a twin. (laughs) Papa was from a wealthy family, and the money had come from coal and timber originally, but a couple of generations had laundered it through land speculation and the stock market, so now it's a 100 years respectable money. I think that the main word to use about Papa was uh, macho. (laughs) The good and bad parts of the word macho. Yeah, I thought of him as a playboy, but macho works too, I guess. (laughs) Well, like you've got manly and suave and brave and you've also got womanizer and egocentric and... And gambler. Every time I saw blackjack and anything, I keep thinking gambling... Which is true. That's what he did. He drank, he gambled, he womanized. Well, he worked on Wall Street, so there's kind of a (laughs) superior form of gambling. Well, he was a stockbroker in a family firm, and he man-about-towned it sort of spectacularly. Mama's people were also rich. 
But the money was newer, super new, in fact, because her own father was the one who had made it big in real estate, speculation, and architecture. So you can put the back of your hand on your forehead. New money, huh? Her family was new money, where his was actually listed in the social register. But still, um, Janet was sent to all the right schools, the right Protestant waspy schools, even though her family was Catholic. She had a debut. She marketed herself and passed, should we say, as Episcopalian. And it is super hard for me to understand why that's even important. But again, I live in the modern day. Why does it matter? But to these people, it totally mattered. And here's the thing with both families. The Bouviers constructed this whole backstory mythology. They even put it in a little book called Our Forebears and connected them with this old aristocratic French family near Grenoble, which, as it turns out, was later proven to be stuff and nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell you, these people got mileage and mileage, or would it be kilometers and kilometers, since it's French, (laughs) out of this scenario well into the 60s. And Janet's family came from Irish stock, but they hid that behind this story of Confederate Civil War veterans. And again, it was in print. So they really wanted this story to be out that they were from this, you know, deep seated American war veteran family, even though it was, you know, Confederates. (laughs) Oh, they played that story for so long that Jackie's mother later when of course, Jackie was famous. People referred to her as a Southern Belle, a Southern Belle born in New York City. <laughs> but OK. Now, I imagine all this was much easier before the likes of Ancestry.com. So anyway, a lot of puffing up of resumes is happening on both sides of Jackie's family tree. And Janet is trying to work her way, as is her family, into this upper echelon of society. They're just one level below with that new money and they want to work their way up. Janet was actually friends with Jack's twin sisters, and that's how they met, summering in the same place, that up-and-coming Hamptons area. So at 37 years old, Black Jack Bouvier proposed marriage to Janet Lee, who was 21, and I have to tell you, nobody was very happy about that. Jack had a reputation for being a bit of a hide-your-wives-and-daughters (laughs) Um, No indication that would stop, frankly. And her family's like, are you sure you want to put yourself in this inevitable situation? Putting a ring on it is not going to stop him. Uh, At least we don't think so. And from the Bouvier side, they saw the Lees as, you know, less social climbers, buccaneers. Like, how dare you aspire this high? How dare you think you're worthy of our family? Doesn't that sound like a good start already to this relationship? (laughs) No, they're off to such a great start. But 500 guests sprawled across a lawn on an East Hampton property, and they danced and drank. And if they were lucky, they could hear Jack and his new father-in-law fighting in the kitchen. (laughs) Now, there's video of the wedding. Actually, it's a silent film because it's, you know, 1928, but um, there's video we can link you to. And it doesn't cover the fighting. I'm sorry. <laughs> really much funner. Um, so anyway, I, I think she was just marrying to try to get out of the house because that father in question and her mother hadn't spoken in years. I mean, everybody's at the dinner table and the dad would literally say to his children, tell your mother to pass the salt. And the daughter would have to turn to the mother. Father says, please pass the salt. I mean, <laughs> 
It went on for years. They said they wouldn't get divorced until the daughters were married, but they sure didn't even live together by the time she was about to get married. It was very tense. And that was a very common escape route for society ladies, I think, but it's kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire. You're really taking a big chance. Mm. I think it was an escape route for a lot of women, regardless of what level of society they were in. But you have a family like that that's setting such a low bar for marital bliss. You know, <laughs> It has to go up, right? I don't think so, because Jack wasn't even across the Atlantic on their honeymoon before he was caught flirting with another woman. They hadn't even been married a week yet, and he's already being a tomcat. It's just nefarious, really. So our Jackie was born just a little over a year later, and right afterward, the stock market crash of 1929 happened. The big one, Black Tuesday, the beginning of the Depression happened, and that directly and then later indirectly did a number on Blackjack's bank account. Not so much that we have to move off Park Avenue, mind you. Especially since the family lived rent-free in one of Janet's father's buildings. That helps. <laughs> no kidding. He actually started off pretty good because he had sent some trouble in the market and he had gotten out to a degree and didn't lose a lot in that first wave. But he was just such a spender and his moves were so risky that he had earned millions and then he lost it over that first year. Yeah, we no longer have that delightful unending cushion of cash. Yeah. We were down to three cars, you guys. <laughs> And drivers. In 1929, we were down to three cars. I'm just going to tell you, they're not eating mac and cheese. They didn't even stop their lifestyle. They they cut back not a bit. Not a bit. Well, luckily for little Jackie and her sister, Caroline Lee, when she came along, who everyone just called Lee, Grandpa Bouvier had it all under control, though they were spending their capital and not their interest now. I've read enough turn-of-the-century literature to know that is a bad sign. That's a problem. I mean... I don't seem to be able to achieve this problem <laughs> myself. <laughs> Seems like I'm always spending my capital. But um, on the surface, it all looks really great. Uh, Grandpa Bouvier had this giant house in East Hampton called Lasata, which means place of peace. Every summer, everybody descends from everywhere. Cousins and horses and glamorous mamas with clouds of perfume as the parents went out for dinner. Jackie was winning awards with her little pony by the time she was five. And you should see these photos of her at that age. I mean, I put so much on the Pinterest board. What an easy Pinterest board to make, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But Janet was a horsewoman herself. She was an equestrienne, the competitive brand. So, of course, she put her daughter on a horse at two. <laughs> now, my son sat on a pony at two years old, but the people made him wear a helmet and the horse didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> There seemed to be a pretty ramped up sense of sibling rivalry early on. Wouldn't you say that started super early? I read an interview where Lee said that one time Jackie clocked her with a croquet mallet and she was unconscious for two days. <laughs> yes, I would say that. But on the flip side, and I don't have a sister, so I don't know how this works. They were very close for their whole life. They were competitive, but they were also close. They had nicknames in the house, Jacks and Peaks. I keep thinking it didn't help that Black Jack favored, I mean, he really did favor Jackie so obviously. Well, and Jackie physically favored him, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, she looked, and she was the first one. It, it was a nice little family unit. Again, from the outside, it looked really good. But I think it had some good moments, too. 
So Jackie started at the Chapin School back in New York during the school year. Uh, Still there, by the way. It's at 100 East End Avenue. I just looked up tuition. This year is $49,000. If that gives you an idea what kind of school it was (laughs) and is... um, I don't know who's paying for that. I would guess Grandpa Bouvier, but I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, it has a really um, illustrious list of alumni. I mean, Lily Pulitzer went there, Ivanka Trump, Vera Wang, Sigourney Weaver, a couple Roosevelt, a couple Rockefellers, a couple Vanderbilts, DuPont. You know, it's a good place to go. (laughs) Yes. But Jackie was really bright and she was reading The Wizard of Oz and uh, Winnie the Pooh before she even entered kindergarten. And Chekhov, not that much later. She was reading like short stories of Chekhov. I always wonder when people say that how much they actually understood. Because I remember reading things and then you would just have this whole buzz over like, I don't know what that meant. Yeah. And you'd read it at, like at the surface level. Like if you read Animal Farm, it's about animals. Right. On a right. Farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So behind the scenes, Blackjack and Janet were fighting, 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 fighting. Jack was as predicted, ruthlessly and constantly, publicly unfaithful. This isn't even a discreet situation. And Janet herself, probably based on her childhood, had this hair trigger violent temper. And these things do not mix well. And evidently, Janet may well have taken a lot of her anger out on her kids. I'm sorry to say. I know. I did. I read that in one source. I'm like, ah, that's exaggerated. And then I read it in another and I was like, oh, really? Especially Jackie, because, of course, dad favored her. She Mm -hmm. was a favorite. So she did. I mean, there was some physical I'm going to call it abuse, although I'm sure at the time she considered it, quote, punishment. You know, slapping someone across the face is pretty much never discipline. That's what I'm going to say about that. Oh, I'm going to agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, there was a trial separation when Jackie was about seven, which led to a messy, nasty, in the newspaper level divorce when Jackie was almost 10. So Janet, on the outside, she looked like she was holding it together. But honestly, she was spiraling from the stress of this separation. She was drinking, taking sleeping pills, crying a lot. She was in a real depression. And then some of the evidence that she had gathered about Jack's philandering slipped to the press and it became this huge media thing. There is a picture of Black Jack holding another lady's hand behind the back of Janet. That was in the papers. Mm-hmm. Janet had won an award in a horse show and she's sitting proud with her award and Jack's right behind her holding someone else's hand. Mm-mm-mm. So she grabbed the girl's took him to Nevada and got a quickie divorce. Jack had lost the lion's share of his money by then, and he owed his father and Janet's father a lot of money. There was just no mercy anywhere for anyone's privacy. The kids were talking about it at school, and they would feel free to make comments to her about it all. Divorce, you know, wasn't that common, but I'm sure it was breakfast table talk all over Manhattan. Poor little Jackie. I know. And Lee. You can't forget Lee. (laughs) Jackie at school kept it all together. Oh, she did. At least on the surface, she was very popular. She was athletic and funny, super quick at lessons, mischievous. Although she's equally possible to be sent to the principal's office for sass mouthing and getting an award for any number of things at school. She is a complicated character. (laughs) And you know what? I think she keeps that through her entire life. Oh, that's foreshadowing. Yes. But Janet, when it was summertime, you know, time for them to migrate out to the Hamptons, she rented a house that was 40 miles away to make it harder for him to get to the girls. Although he did it. He was kind of their 
you know, Disneyland parent, he did not cut back on his spending, even though he didn't really have the money to spend. And he would take him to all the really fun spots, you know, the zoo, the park, shopping, ice cream. Being with dad was really exciting. Whereas being with mom, who was the disciplinarian, but she also taught them manners and, you know, things they needed in life. It did always gall her that her daughters preferred their father. And they did, even though legally and technically and morally, he was the bad guy in the divorce. He was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's the fun dad. He even um, maintained a horse for Jackie in Central Park. In Mama's defense, she took them on field trips, too. Hers were a little more educational. One actually affected Jackie's whole life. They took a trip to the White House, which 11-year-old Jackie felt was completely uninspiring and unwelcoming. Note to self, that brain cell has lodged. It will activate in a few years. Well, Mama married again. I almost think that was inevitable. I don't know in her class in that time that she had a lot of options. She married an extraordinarily wealthy man, a standard oil heir named Hugh D. Auchincloss, who everyone decided to call Hugh D. Hugh D. I do think she married well this time. He seems like a really nice guy. Granted, he was twice divorced with three children of his own, um, but I think the family blended pretty well. Granted, they got off to a little rough start because it was World War II, and Hugh D. was being called up to do intelligence work. He needed to ship out immediately. So they got married and then he took off and then Janet could tell the girls that it happened. She called them on the phone. They didn't even know. Whatever. You have a stepdad and two new brothers and another little sister. Um, two epic mansions to live in. That's good. Jackie's year was spent differently than before. Now she's in Virginia during the year and she's summering in Newport at the Auchincloss family cottage. And you know what is meant by a Newport cottage, not a cottage. No, it was a 28 room mansion on 90 acres. Jackie changed schools. Now she's going to the Holton Arms School, super discounted at $42,000 a year. (laughs) Um, So the war was on And really, the main thing that changed for Jackie, obviously, was the stepdad situation. Uh, Besides seeing men in uniform and Navy ships going by, I think she was a little insulated from the war, except for the fact that she had to take care of about 2,000 chickens, which is a lot of chickens. Um, I guess their farm was tasked with providing rations for soldiers, and that um, was one of the things they had going She liked being outside. She was an outdoorsy girl. This house, after stepdad got home, did not seem to be more peaceful than the last one. Later, much later, JFK described it as pure bedlam. It was slamming doors, swearing, chaos. People found Janet both utterly charming and completely terrifying simultaneously. (laughs) Speaking of your complicated women... In Janet's defense, life had been sort of a series of bad relationships from her father on, and I can see why she was an anxious person, I guess. But those people with, like, anger lava constantly bubbling under the surface scare the living crap out of me, and I don't think I could take her. I mean, no one's a complete ogre, don't get me wrong. And I'll recommend a book that kind of fleshes out their complicated relationship, Janet and Jackie. I just want to say these early years, our episode one years, are pretty 
contentious between mother and daughter. So I'm not sure if this new family was a haven exactly, but Jackie and Lee had six new siblings, ultimately. (laughs) The money was not to be sneezed at and the connections, the connections. (laughs) These Aachen classes were right here at the top of the social order. If we're playing King of the Mountain, we are, if not at the top, we can touch the king's boots from here. Through a relative of her stepfather, speaking of connections, Jackie was accepted to Miss Porter's school in Farmington, Connecticut. Uh, As of this recording, it has just turned 175 years old. And just in the spirit of continuity, I'll tell you what the tuition is for here. It is $58,970. It's actually about 15 miles west of where I am right now. (laughs) It was a finishing school. It polished young ladies for the future as society wives. (laughs) But it also had a focus on academics. And when Jackie went in, that focus was changing. It was becoming more academically based to prepare these girls to go on to school, not just to go on to their MRS degrees. Correct. So Jackie took classes in art, literature, poetry, history, English, and French. She participated in the drama. She even wrote a play. She wrote for the newsletter. And of course, horseback riding because Grandpapa paid for boarding her horse at school. But by the next year, we're talking 16 years old, she was living a more sophisticated life than I ever will. I am in awe. She's off to New York to hob and knob, off to football games at the likes of Yale University, out to society coming out parties far too early as far as everyone else was concerned, which seems to have been resented a little bit. But Jackie kind of didn't care. Her mother didn't care. They saw it as like an apprenticeship year. This isn't the real one. So learn, observe, meet people. Mm -hmm. And we think of Jackie as being one way now. And she was totally different at that age. She was very witty. She had a dirty sense of humor. She took up smoking, which she did keep for the rest of her life. Um, when her, when Lee called herself fat, Jackie told her to take up smoking because she'd lose weight. There's some good sisterly advice. And I think Lee was like 12 or 11 at the time. I know. And then she became anorexic later on. So not the best advice, I don't think. Jack would come and visit at Miss Porter's. I mean, he was close. He was in New York. He would drive up in his convertible and speed onto campus. He'd bring movie magazines and stockings, and he'd drive his daughter off campus, which she loved. But at this point, he's aging a bit. And instead of this charming playboy image that he had in his head, all of Jackie's friends looked at him like a dirty old man, and they kind of mocked him behind his back. Well, he'd show up at school and brag to his own daughter about conquests among the mothers of her fellow students. And Jackie seems to have thought it was super funny, but I think that is broken. I think that is messed up. Yes. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Maybe it was her mother's idea, this whole goal of marrying a will with a capital M and a W. Fair enough. It's the 1940s and not everyone can buck tradition or even wants to. But what I do not like is Blackjack's dating advice. Play hard to get. That's okay. But don't act smart. It's too intimidating. I don't like that. Play the game. Always make them wait. Change your personality to suit the man you're with. Also, this one, gross. They're the targets. They're your victims. See how many you can get. Gross, right? (laughs) 
very gross. He definitely earned that dirty old man image. No question about it. Well, and simultaneously, though, he would warn his daughters that all men just want one thing. And remember that no one will ever be good enough for you. It's what are you supposed to take from that? From a man who, you know, who's got a different woman on his arm every time you see him. Hopefully, if you're intelligent, not a lot. (laughs) She graduated from Miss Porter's and was headed to Vassar. And at 17, practice year is over. And woo, did she dominate during her own debutante year, the real one. Society columnist Charlie Knickerbocker named her, quote, the Queen Debutante of the Year, 1947. It is almost like putting a crown on her head, literally, like a tiara. Everybody knew who she was, just like if she was a movie star or whatever. And I just do not know how she passed any classes freshman year at college or sophomore year. The energy of youth. I just don't know. Um, One summer, she went on a whirlwind tour of Europe with some friends of her stepfather's that were high enough up that Jackie got to meet Winston Churchill at a party at Buckingham Palace. Like you do. (laughs) I'm just saying these are 17-year-old people and 18-year-old people. And they are living lives like La Vida Loca. I don't even know what is happening. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, she was going to Vassar. That's a very difficult school to get into. It's a, you know, now it's co-ed, but then it was an all women's college. So she had to find men somewhere and she loved being around men. She loved flirting. She didn't do that other stuff. I don't believe she did. Do you? Was it a white wedding? I'm not sure about that. But in college, I do think that Jackie went along with society's norms um, that you are to save some elements of yourself for your husband. Mm hmm. That's the impression I got as well. So she was able to spend her junior year abroad in France at the Sorbonne during junior year abroad, although she did kind of hitch her wagon to Smith College rather than Vassar because they didn't have a program going. And again, her social life is beyond imagination. Right now, close your eyes. Let me give you a montage. Castles, country house weekends. There's a candlelit table that seats 80 and convertibles full of fabulously attractive young people with their hair blowing around. And it would like to kill me from jealousy, frankly. (laughs) She made it into some very respected social circles quite easily. She was a popular guest um, with what one friend described as a, quote, raunchy sense of humor, which the English upper classes were so (laughs) surprised and delighted by. She developed a technique during these years where she acted or really was interested in everyone else, but didn't answer any questions about herself. Um, She would turn it around and that's actually called being a good listener, but she didn't give a lot away. Which her father probably would have approved of as a strategy at this particular time in her life. Another thing she was doing at the time is she was kind of hiding her intelligence. Again, that was advice from her dad. Mm. But if a boy was complaining that he wasn't doing very well in a class, even if she was getting an A, she'd say, yeah, me too. And that's when she was developing that breathy little girl voice you kind of associate with her later on in her life. It was not the voice that she went into college with but it's the one she had when she left. Yeah, she was kind of notorious for a loud voice and uh, open-mouthed laughter, throwing back her head and uh, grand gestures and poking people and playing practical jokes and this and that. And gradually she shaved all that off, sanded it off maybe. And at least on the outside, put this very refined cloak of respectability all over herself. I have to tell you, I, especially during this point, she had put off coming home 
And her papa like started pacing the room back home. He was very stressed out about it. They had such an odd relationship. He <laughs> he was almost like obsessed with her. Are you getting that too? Yes. Yeah. Li- kind of living through her life a little bit. He was more interested in her appearance and her social life than the average dad. Almost like she was his horse in some kind of life race. I'm reminded of this one thing where she got a haircut and he freaked out and left work and rushed home to make sure she hadn't ruined her head. I don't know. Seems weird. (laughs) Well, for her senior year of college, Jackie decided not to go back to what she called, excuse my French, that Vassar, but she was going to finish up at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She majored in French literature. Uh, She took courses in journalism and creative writing. And one of her professors had said that, quote, she had a genuine talent for the craft of writing. She had a gift as a writer. She didn't need to take my class. That's how well she was writing. Impressive. I think that is great. Well, (laughs) based on native talent, I believe that her mother recognized her mother had encouraged her to try for this. I mean, it was a long shot. This Prix de Paris uh, Vogue had a challenge. You could apply, send in what was this giant dossier full of um, ideas and packets and about yourself and about fashion. And what would you do with the magazine? It was, I mean, it was no joke to fill out all of the paperwork. Um, And the winner of this contest would get to work in the New York offices of Vogue for six months and then go to Paris to work at Vogue Paris for the rest of the year. It was a giant big deal. Just as a little taste of what was here, I just want to read to you how she described herself physically. As to physical appearance, I am tall, 5'7", with brown hair, a square face, and eyes that are so unfortunately far apart that it takes three weeks to have a pair of glasses made wide enough to fit over my nose. I do not have a sensational figure, but I can look slim if I pick the right clothes. I flatter myself on being able, at times, to walk out of the house looking like a poor man's copy of Paris. (laughs) Okay. She said this is one of her ideal outfits. A sleeveless plaid dress teamed with a black turtleneck blouse could cope with Sunday afternoons at college, followed by dinner in town and Sunday lunch at his family's house in the country. So after graduating and yet another summer in Europe where an entire section of a bullfight came to blows to defend her honor when someone got her shirt wet and she was a little bit exposed. Yes. Uh, Where she met the prime minister, like you do. Here Jackie comes for her first day at Vogue magazine. She is like an aspirational movie. (laughs) Her photo had already run in Vogue, announcing her as the winner of the contest. And so she reported for that first day of work in New York, ready to go. And by the end of the day, she had quit. (laughs) So here she is at a desk in the office of Bettina Ballard, who we have talked about before. During the Coco Chanel episode, the woman who ushered in Chanel's comeback in America after that disastrous fashion show, the one that took the three outfits from Coco Chanel's failed, I put that in quotes, collection and featured them in American Vogue. That's still two years in the future, but this is the lady. This is the brain we're sitting in on. You know, this is not small potatoes. This is the ultimate fast pass to greatness. 
There's a couple different stories as to why she left, because this is very confusing. Why would you spend all that energy and time putting together this dossier, this huge book of an application, only to quit on your first day? Here's one story about what happened. And I'm picturing Devil Wears Prada on this one. A gay male employee came in and uh, enthused too campily about some green velvet fabric. And she might have realized she'd never meet a husband here and left. What? I know. That doesn't even sound right. When she graduated from high school, she said the one thing she didn't want to be was a housewife. So is she really looking for a man at this point? That seems crazy. A more logical one to me is that Janet didn't really want Jackie to leave. Even though she had encouraged her to apply in the first place, leaving meant that Jackie was going to go to Paris. And if Jackie went to Paris, she might stay there as an expat for who knows how long. And Janet wasn't ready to give her up. So she told the personnel office, regardless of the reason, my mother would rather I stay in the home. She thinks this is not the proper path for me. Well, I don't know. She worked there from three to five hours. Uh, No word on who the second place finisher was. I hope she was excited to get that phone call. (laughs) I just don't know. But all I can say is Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. (laughs) This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happens to Jackie now that she's left Vogue. Now what? Now that we've left Vogue magazine so abruptly after our grueling three-hour shift, what are we going to (laughs) do? Jackie still thought that she had a future as a writer of some sort, but she had no place to go except back home. So she moved back to Washington, back to Marywood with her mom and her stepdad and got a secretarial job with the Washington Times Herald. That's not a paper anymore. Uh, It later merged with the Washington Post. So its spirit is still alive. But she worked her way up from secretary to a more meatier job as an inquiring photographer, and she got her own column. The format of this feature was that you'd go out into the street or out to an office with a question of the day and a camera, and you would make an article out of your results. My favorite question that she ever asked was, when did you discover that women were not the weaker sex? Woo, it's like a <laughs> grenade. <laughs> I know, really. But she sometimes directed her questions towards the kind of person that she was talking to. Like if she was talking to some construction workers, she might ask about boxing. But as she started to realize that she wasn't married and it became something more on her mind, she started asking questions about that. Are wives a necessity or a luxury? She really did take it seriously. So 
this is the kind of job that you could go either way with this. It was it was one as an editor that you'd give to your upper class friends, pretty daughters before they got married kind of thing. End of qualifications. But she made something out of it. Evidently here, as everywhere else, she made an impression. At a dinner party, she met a young, single congressman named Jack Kennedy. But, and I love this story, there was a little magnetismo, you know, like, oh, well, let me walk you out, etc., you know. But Jackie had this Mustang, this old, raggedy Mustang, sort of a famous calling card around town of hers, and it had been parked outside all evening. So here's Jack and Jackie, and they get to the car still murmuring about, oh, you know, so attractive, blah, blah, blah. And then like, hey, presto, an old boyfriend (laughs) had been passing by and had seen the Mustang and had hidden in the backseat and jumped out to surprise her. (laughs) It's like, oh, awkward, never mind. And my friends, they went their separate ways, Jack and Jackie. (laughs) But... Jackie's friends and her mother kind of made it their pet project to find a spouse for Jackie. They were inviting her to dinners and introducing her to men. And a man that she met this way, she began to seriously date. He was an investment banker. He was handsome. He was a Yaley. And his name was John Husted Jr. The two dated for a while and then became engaged about Christmas time. Jackie was 22. So she brought him to visit her family at Marywood. And at the end of the evening, she walked him to the train and gave him the ring back and ended the relationship. (laughs) Well, her mother, this is one element, did not think she'd aimed high enough because Jackie was not in love. There's not even that excuse. What even was this then? If you're going to marry for money, you have to aim higher than whatever this is. And so she broke it off. And Broke his heart. He recovered. He got married. He's fine. But maybe in unrelated news, old Congressman Kennedy was back in her life. Hmm. (laughs) Those friends of hers kept making situations for them to be at the same place at the same time. At a party in Palm Springs, at a dinner. They were obviously attracted to each other. But Jack was attracted to a lot of women. Now, what can we say about John Fitzgerald Kennedy that you don't already know? Here is a very quick biography. He was the second of the eight children of Joe and Rose Kennedy. And Joe Kennedy was a rich man, new rich, if that's important to you. And he had blown his own chances for a political career during World War II. So he now transferred all his ambitions to his sons. When the oldest brother died in the war, Jack, the second born, seemed like the next natural heir to the ambition. He was good looking. He was charming. He'd served honorably in the war. What's not to like? Although he was horribly ill his whole life, which I was not sure that I knew. He had Addison's disease. He had skeletal problems from birth. He had a healthy series of venereal diseases, which we could have predicted. (laughs) Um, These things were swept under the rug. So by the time he comes into our story, he was 35. He was a member of the United States House of Representatives from Massachusetts, and he's well on his way to stardom. They dated... Not exclusively, so you should get used to that, Jackie, for about a year, 
and he was running for Senate at the time. Busy, 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 busy. She did go with him to President Eisenhower's inaugural ball, though, so it's obvious that she was respectable enough to appear in that sort of society, and they kept dating after he won his Senate seat. And get this, she helped him with his first big speech by translating this whole shelf full of research materials for him from French to English. So, Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, it is not every girlfriend in the 1950s that can help you tell the world about the political situation in Southeast Asia. I'm just saying. (laughs) No, it's not. And there was another Mr. Kennedy that realized this as well, and that was you know, King Joe, and he saw Jackie as the perfect partner for Jack. She had everything that an aspiring political hero would want in a bride, except Jack didn't want to get married. Yeah, sometimes doing this show, I reach a point in my research where my illusions are just shattered. Almost like, my, I wish I had stopped just before this chapter. Um, And this is the point... (laughs) I believe I reached here. Jack Kennedy was pretty uninterested in getting married. You know, he's such a man about town. Why tie an anchor on all this fabulousness? And he wasn't in love with anyone. So why shouldn't he go on business as usual? Well, I'll tell you why, because his father told him it was time. And I wonder if any of you ever watched Sex in the City, where they talked about men being cruising taxis and just one day they turn their light on and the very next woman they date becomes Mrs. Taxi. I'm not sure if I believe that exactly in real life, but in this case, Daddy Joe Kennedy reached in the window and turned his son's taxi light on. You need a wife to advance, my friend, an accessory. You need a prop for PR purposes. You need a couple of children. A single man is going to hit a wall, dude, so chop, chop. That Jackie Bouvier you've been bringing around, that's perfect. She knows all these important people. She was Deb of the Year. She knows how to dress. She's a lady. I mean, your choice, whatever, but it's time. You're 35. And all the Kennedys obeyed their father as if he were a king. Not every woman could survive in the Kennedy family. This was a extremely competitive, very tight, very loud, big family. Uh, Jackie had described them like this, quote, they were like carbonated water and other families might be flat. (laughs) She went on another time to say, if you don't get on the offensive, you'd be on the defensive all night. So she could run with the Kennedys. A lot of other women would be chopped up and spit out in no time, especially by those women. The sisters and the sister-in-law, Ethel, they called her the Deb. They made fun of her behind her back, but she held her own in this family. I have to tell you, I would be hiding under the stairs alternately. You would see me with cartoon roadrunner feet, like, whoop, 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 on my road, getting out of there. Because, I, you know, I'm not signing up for that. Well, if anything... Jackie may have loved Jack or the idea of Jack. I don't know. I The feeling was not mutual. <sighs> I was thinking of crying real tears in an idle sort of way right here, but like I'm a realist, whatever. Mm. <laughs> On Jackie's part, I'm sorry to say, I think just from my perspective, the main objective seems to be money. She'd always been stressed out about money, which here from the cheap seats seems mighty ridiculous. (laughs) But I guess in the waters she swam in, she was always the poor relation. You know, her father had lost most of his money. 
She was always panic-stricken. She said that her tuition would come up unpaid and she'd get hauled out of school. And after Janet married Mr. Auchincloss, she and her sister Lee were the only two of all those children who didn't have trust funds. They're not blood relations, you know. It seems like the small violin to me, honestly, because she had been showered in luxury since birth. You know, and no one ever begrudged her or Lee any material thing on earth. They weren't even made to feel bad about anything. That's the <laughs> thing. But I guess there was some deep desire to be, I guess, entitled officially to her own money. It's kind of spoiled, I'm sorry to say. And there seemed to be also some personal pressure. She wanted to get out from under the stressful, volatile Auchincloss house. I want to read that as her mother's house. <laughs> and also... Her younger sister had just gotten married, and I believe she felt some pressure to get down the aisle, any old aisle, which is not the searing love story that I expected. No, I agree with you. She, I think she was monetarily motivated, but Jack and her shared a lot of things. They had some common ground. They both enjoyed reading. They enjoyed reading poetry. They loved history. On their dates, they'd play board games and hang out with their friends. It They were very normal together. And I think a lot of women in this era and in this social sphere would get married for just the money. But I think Jackie had a little bit more because of that common ground that they had. Maybe a little intellectual capabilities that matched each other. Exactly. Exactly. Well, she had broken off an engagement because she didn't have that thing, whatever it was. And she had it with Jack. So he did ask her to marry him. And she took the only piece of blackjack dating advice that I approve of and played a little hard to get. There was a very timely invitation <laughs> to go see the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II where she stayed at the house of one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies-in-waiting. You guys. <laughs> I'm just like, she should have hung around this place and found a nice earl to marry and become Countess What's-Her-Name. But anyway, her notes on these couple of weeks of parties for the coronation were the very last journalism that she ever did as Jacqueline Bouvier. And all of her friends in Europe told her to tell Jack Kennedy no. Like, who even were these Kennedys? Oh, I know the father. He'd been here before. He was the ambassador to the United Kingdom in the 1930s and had known Queen Elizabeth II's dad. I mean, he was in the social register for that very reason, that he was the ambassador. But he had sort of advocated caving to Hitler, even being heard to say that England would be the very first place to beg Hitler for peace. That is not good. Another not good thing, Ambassador Joe Kennedy went to hide in his country house during the Blitz. It was a show of cowardice, and it got him a very bad reputation. Many people had a very bad taste in their mouth about him. And also, anyway, father and son both sleep with anything that moves Jackie, even each other's conquests. Listen to me. But she's like, teehee, I'm just marrying a man like my father. <laughs> Speaking of giving in to the Nazis, when she went to England, she was on the same boat as the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. <laughs> They were not going to the coronation as they were not invited, um, but back home to Paris. <laughs> you know, she's traveling in good circles, I guess. She does meet up with quite a few other uh, other subjects, doesn't she? We've already had Coco Chanel. Now we've had the Duchess of Windsor and Queen Elizabeth. So hooray. 
I could throw in another one. On her trip back, she sat next to Zsa Zsa Gabor, who later said that Jackie had kinky hair and bad skin. We have not covered Zsa Zsa Gabor yet. Oh, Zsa Zsa Gabor. I know. Kinky hair, though. That's a surprise. I know. I guess I didn't even realize her hair was even remotely curly. I just thought it was, um, you know, interfered with. Interesting. <laughs> well, anyway, um, yeah, Jack Kennedy's a whole other scale of womanizing. He views the world like target practice. And he doesn't love you the way your father does. And you were not your father's wife. So I don't know what kind of optimism that was. Well, the engagement was announced right after a major newspaper feature had come out calling Jack, quote, the most eligible bachelor in the country. So with perfect PR timing, because I'm a cynic now. <laughs> As you should be. Uh, so that's when the engagement was announced. And Jackie and Jack were both described as depressed and full of dread, respectively. <laughs> well, you know, Joe himself, who was probably behind the press release that talked about Jack being this great bachelor, um, he was involved with purchasing the engagement ring. Jack didn't even pick it out. I'm not entirely sure that Joe picked it out. I think he phoned ahead and had the store just like pull a bunch of stuff you think I might like and I'll come approve it and pay for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder if the first time Jack saw it was when he opened the box to give it to her. <laughs> Like every Christmas present from mom and dad, where dad has no idea what's in the box. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, from the very moment that he heard his Jackie was getting married, Black Jack immediately, immediately started shaping up. You know, he'd gotten a little rough with the drinking and he'd sort of let himself go physically and psychologically, but he got himself slapped together for his favorite daughter. He stopped drinking, full stop. He went on a diet. He started jogging around Central Park in this horrible rubber onesie. I hope he wore it under some clothes. <laughs> I'm thinking it's more like a rubber, like a hazmat suit. So it's not like tight fitting, like a, you know, a wetsuit. Wouldn't it's he a look more like a monster? <laughs> well, he was sweating, I guess. Maybe he just smelled like a monster. Oh, yeah. Well, at the end of all this, after a shower, I'm assuming in some detox, he looked great. He was excited. This was going to be the biggest freaking day of his life. But Janet sent word that he wasn't invited to the reception. And you know what? You're also not invited to the dinner the night before. You can show up at church because... Any fool off the street can show up in church. You can walk Jackie down the aisle and then you have to get out. Like, why? I think Jan, well, first off, the Auchincloss's were uh, helping to foot the bill for this wedding. They were hosting it at their Newport cottage. Um, so that's part of it. And I think the other part is, is that she got caught up in the Joe Kennedy machine. Joe Kennedy took control of that wedding planning. You know, he got his public relations department on it, sent out press releases that said it was going to be, quote, one of the most important and colorful weddings ever held in America. So I think mm -hmm. Janet was thrilled by being a part of something so big and such a celebrity event that she didn't want anything from her husband around, you know, her first husband. I don't know. I feel sad. I mean, they had danced together so nicely at Lee's wedding, but you're right. Lee's wedding was no media spectacle. And this was, I mean, even when Jack and Jackie went to get their marriage license, the press was waiting for them. The public couldn't get enough of this story. Thanks to well-placed press releases, I'm sure. But <laughs> they were waiting. It's a big deal. 
Well, poor old Black Jack. And this is his fault. Nobody made him do it. He's a grown man. But he went to the bar and he got so drunk that, in fact, her stepfather, Mr. Auchincloss, walked her down the aisle. And everyone was talking about it all day. Shades of everyone talking about that divorce when little Jackie was 10 and all the mean girls used to get after her. Poor Jackie had to hold it together all day. And I'm sure that she did not get the real story until later. And that must have hurt her very much. But you look at any of those pictures and she looks like a glowing bride. She is a very good actor because I do believe she was heartbroken that her dad wasn't there. But she, you know, she went through with everything like the star of the day, which she was, even if she didn't get a say on very much of it. Like even her dress that was designed by committee. Jack wanted her in something traditional and old-fashioned, and her mom and Joe wanted something frilly. And Joe loved the optics of the dress being designed and made by an African-American designer. So she didn't have any say in very much of this wedding, but yet she appears so happy. What an actress. There's a lovely picture I'll put on the Pinterest where there's, um, I even lost count, 12, 14 groomsmen. That is just crazy. But we'll give you an idea of the scale. There were 1,400 people plus at the reception, some of which were political rivals and no one liked at all. There were movie stars there also and a lot of press. So it's kind of like a bunch of strangers at your wedding, including your husband. <laughs> <laughs> Who's kind of a stranger. Well, I mean, immediately everything was sort of tense, right? Um, the exuberant Kennedys were baffling to Jackie, all that competitiveness, win, win, win. And the sisters and sisters-in-law thought she was sort of lati dotty, like always gentle into painting and classical music. And she absolutely did not get into this family joking. They liked nothing more than to put people down and have a roast of someone at the dinner table. And Jackie is just not playing that game. And speaking of games, the only time she ever tried to play touch football with these people, she ended up on crutches. So bag this. <laughs> but um, Jack's father liked her a lot. I mean, not in that way, at least not successfully. He had patted Samaritans on the behind before. Oh, that's a very kind way to put it. He had been a womanizer for his whole life. He lived in the gray areas. He wasn't above anything to make money, get women, um, whatever he wanted to accomplish, he would do it. It didn't, didn't matter. So yeah, patting women on the behind was very polite. <laughs> that was actually one of the reasons he told Jack to get married. He said, look, you might not know this, but your mom and I, we have an arrangement. I can have my women and she gets all this money and all this stuff. So she turns her head. The same thing can happen to you. I'm sure Jackie will be agreeable to it. Honestly, I think if you read any biography of Rose Kennedy, she was not okay with it. She was unhappy her whole life about that, quote, arrangement. So mm -hmm. I'm glad it seems so sunny from his side. That makes me, oh. I want to punch his face. <laughs> Several times. Well, Jackie did a lot to get closer to her husband, even to the point of heading to Georgetown University, where she took some history and political science classes so she could participate intelligently in his world and at the dinner table. But his political activities, etc., activities kept him away from home for most of Jackie's waking hours. It wasn't conducive to a lot of closeness until... Unfortunately, I guess, Jack had a spinal operation, which was followed by serious 
near fatal complications. She really, really stepped up. She stayed with him in the hospital. She read to him to the point of exhaustion. She gave a show of devotion that really impressed everyone. And it was during this period that she encouraged him and supported him as he put together notes for a book called Profiles in Courage, for which he later won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way. But the whole time, you know how sick people sometimes are. He gave her dog's abuse. He was not nice to her and he mocked her in front of everyone. And yet she stood by him. Well, I have to say, you know, he was better than her dad in one regard. He waited a whole two weeks before he went back to some women after the wedding. (laughs) Dad didn't even get across the ocean, but, you know, Jack made it a couple weeks. So, you know, she should stick by him, right? That is sarcasm, people. (laughs) (laughs) So less than two years after their wedding, these two Kennedys were in different countries. Jackie in France telling everyone who would listen that she was never going back to her husband. Jack in Sweden having a thing with an old flame. But Joe Kennedy wouldn't have it. If you are ever going to be president, you can't have a divorce in your past. And several books I read put forth the theory that King Joe Kennedy sweetened the deal by giving Jackie a significant amount of money in her own name. I buy it. I mean, haha, <laughs> pun intended. Well, true or not true, I don't know. But there was a weird pivot here where the public face of the young Kennedy marriage was all fixed now. Nothing to see here. La, 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 la. <laughs> And they all got on the same page, you know, Joe made sure they did. It's like, we have this mission, we're going to do it. And Joe Kennedy doesn't lose missions. You know, he makes it happen. What is that by hook or by crook? And he was a crook. So there you go. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Jackie had had an early miscarriage, but was soon pregnant again. And she accompanied Jack to the Democratic National Convention, where he was raising his profile. People were starting to take notice of him. And her role as political wife was very demanding, but she charmed everyone she came across and really supported him. Now, he lost his bid for the vice presidential nomination, but that was okay. We didn't even see that as a loss because the vice presidential role was often seen as a dead end politically. So you didn't necessarily want it. But the thing is, his name and his face were now in everyone's mind. And that was a perfect outcome. And after all that hard work was over, Jack took off for a scheduled guy's trip on a French riverboat tour, and Jackie stayed behind. She was seven months pregnant, so it wasn't a a bitterness. It wasn't a we're on the outs or anything. It was just a, you know, separate vacation, and that was fine. Yeah, and she hung out until she was about eight months pregnant when one day she started to hemorrhage. She was rushed to the emergency room, had an emergency C-section, and delivered a stillborn daughter that they had already named Arabella. Now, the story is, I just want to add, as an aside, as a footnote that they had a ship to shore radio, (laughs) but the story goes that no one could reach Jack for a few days until they came into port. And when they did... And this is what changed my mind about JFK, kids. He said, oh, I suppose that's the end of our trip then. He wasn't even going to go home until a friend said, boy, if you ever hope to be president, you better get your home to your wife. So he did. (laughs) But their relationship really wasn't on solid ground. Jackie had been rehabbing a house with plans to raise their family there. And she just couldn't even go into this house 
anymore. So she sold it to Bobby and Ethel for their ever-growing family. I mean, they had five then and 11 kids. <laughs> Bobby and Ethel were very good at making babies. And they lived there, you know, for a very long time. But it was originally... Jack and Jackie's house, their first house together, and she couldn't live there. Well, when Jackie was 28, the best thing and the worst thing happened. Poor old broken black Jack died of liver cancer, the man who loved her the most in the whole entire world. But four months later, her daughter Caroline was born, which was a day that Jackie said was the happiest day of her entire life. And what Jackie probably didn't know at the time is that Jack had more than likely given her chlamydia somewhere along the way. And that's why she was having trouble keeping these pregnancies and bringing them to term. So Caroline's birth was even more of a miracle that Jackie just didn't even know. I am not sure if we talked about this during the Catherine of Aragon and the Anne Boleyn podcast episodes, but I believe there is a theory that that is what caused all those miscarriages among those poor women who took the blame for the whole thing, but in fact may have been Henry VIII's fault in the first place. That's not good. No. So after Caroline was born, there was sort of a tipping point, and I am going to call this the remodeling years. The outside of their marriage got a new coat of paint. Jack and Jackie both upgraded their physical appearances, which I think was down to Jackie to change him. Um, she had actually written about this, ironically, way back in that Vogue dossier for the contest. She had proposed an article about men's clothes to be featured in the women's fashion magazine Vogue because... Women often wanted to change their husband's appearance and wouldn't it be a service to provide them with the information to do it. Evidently, Jack had worn brown shoes somewhere, which offended the crap out of everyone and was a giant big deal. So anyway, that all got fixed up. Um, didn't know that was such a big deal. Brown shoes. But <laughs> evidently it was. Um, their house became grander, became a stage. And Jackie was determined to get over some things like shyness and snobbiness, or pretend she did, to act like the political wife that King Joe Kennedy had thought she'd be, an asset to the company called Kennedy. Why was this? Because Jack Kennedy had decided, no, because Joe Kennedy <laughs> had decided that Jack Kennedy was going to make a run for president of the United States. He was going to bypass years of working his way up the ranks of the Democratic Party, of paying his dues. You know what, kid? We're just going to aim high. We're going to go for it. It's a new era. It's a new day. And your new blood. And the end. We're not going to waste any more time. Well, yeah. And he did get the nomination. Um, Jackie helped with his campaign. She answered mail. She helped him with research and speech writing. She was fluent in French. We've already talked about that. But she was also fluent in Spanish and Italian. And it seemed like every ethnic group that they spoke to, she could say something in their native language. Just a little greeting if she didn't have, you know, the fluency of it. And people loved this about her. She was such an asset on the campaign trail. You're right. It was noted that any event in which Jackie participated had some kind of buzz, like a different vibe about it. She spoke French to a crowd in New Orleans and about broke the minds of the whole planet. <laughs> Jackie Kennedy, to me, seems like a fundamentally lonely person. I have thought this about her whole entire life. 
She had one or two relatively close friends in high school and college, but everyone else was at arm's length. All these other friends, all these other acquaintances seem like they're only getting the surface and sort of this carefully constructed surface, almost like a pre-internet blogger. I mean, you know, I will curate my life and I will show you only the good parts. Like when press would come to the house to take um, photos of them and do features on them, family life, you know, nannies were out of sight. Housekeepers were cut out of the story. I hate that when people like, oh, I can do it all. It's just a matter of managing time, you know, being very organized, whatever. Mm. <laughs> well, and from this point, Jackie became for the world, for American women, the style icon, the aspirational, exotic, sophisticated American princess type. She became a type. No, she became a brand, you know, and likening it to a internet blogger is such a, a great analogy because Jackie created the brand and she held it, held it tight and anything that was put out in public had to be part of that brand. It had to line up. If it didn't, it didn't go out. She was very good at it. I think she was uniquely qualified for that, given her upbringing and the kind of person she was. You know, even what you just said about her not having a lot of friends, that helped her in this particular situation because there wasn't a lot of people that could tell the true story. There, as a side note, is a blogger named Mimi Thorison who writes cookbooks and writes a blog called Manger. And she lives in a chateau in France with her seven kids. And she seems to be living my best life. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. So I get it. I get it. You're like, oh, I want to have picnics in the chateau garden on a big wooden table with all the Irish wolfhounds and an aga. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like I can get it. Why all of America would think, oh, my God, look at this. Hey, can you go back a little bit? What's an aga? Oh, an aga is this brand of stove that's associated with, I mean, I apologize if you have one, listeners, but it's kind of hoity-toity. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a mark of like, oh, look, regard what is in the kitchen. It's a, a lot of trouble and you can't turn them off. And they often provide heat for your chateau or your old rectory or some kind of other uninsulated dwelling. It's just a, a symbol of um, arrival, I do believe. Aha. The more you know. <laughs> In this case, we'd have to reinforce the floor because I think they're cast iron and I think they weigh a heck of a lot. So you probably need a stone floor to have an aga. But um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so you, you just got to go move into uh, Mimi's chateau. No big. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I have to confess here that there were a whole bunch of times during this research that I just wanted to hug Jackie, which of course she would have hated <laughs> and would never have invited me back into her life. But I do not think that John Fitzgerald Kennedy was the right match for her at all. She was so quick and she was so witty and funny and there was such potential. I mean, she did end up being great. Don't get me wrong, but there was such potential for happiness, happy greatness. I don't know what the word is, but everyone seemed to try to put all that back in a little box. And I think probably that happened to a lot of women in the 1950s. So maybe she was the icon of her time, you know? Yeah. And simultaneously, um, with my research for this show, I am listening to the audiobook of Shonda Rhimes, the producer, writer of Scandal, of Grey's Anatomy, etc. Um, her book called Year of Yes, which I highly recommend listening to. It's read by Shonda Rhimes herself. But there's a quote that struck me that sounded a lot like Mrs. Kennedy. 
I don't think it ever occurred to me before how much and how often women are praised for displaying traits that basically render them invisible. When I really think about it, I realize the culprit is the language we generally use to praise women. Whoa. And that's from the modern day, and we've not advanced any further. Help meetness. Okay. Wow. Well, ironically, here, during the run-up to the primary election and the 1960 presidential election, that whole year, nearly, Jackie was pregnant. (laughs) And so, sort of could not be fully deployed the way Joe Kennedy wanted, which was probably fine with her, actually. (laughs) But she did plenty behind the scenes after she, I wouldn't say she's confined to her house, but following doctor's advice after her difficult pregnancies, she was told to lay off and um, take it easy. She still could help the campaign. She wrote a syndicated newspaper column called Campaign Wife. There were six columns, but a lot of eyes were on them where she talked about being a political and a campaign wife. She made herself very relatable, very real to the readers, and that helped Jack's campaign quite a bit. She also allowed interviews at the House. So she could do some things. She just couldn't be out in front of the people on the campaign trail. But giving people a secret backstage pass is often very exciting. So it was a very smart psychological thing for her to do. Oh, yeah. Even if it was just accidental, which I can't imagine it is. That was just like, oh, you're so smart. Not only are you an (laughs) aspirational style icon, but you're going to let us all in on your secrets. It's Twitter. Yes. It's Twitter. You know, we have this um, connection with these people that we idolize, these celebrities that we'd never talk to because they give us, you know, insights into their life with their cat pictures and (laughs) their political rant. Same thing. So at the advice of some savvy, politically minded women, Jackie began buying American-made clothes because the Republicans were starting to make noises that she was sort of this Marie Antoinette figure, this frivolous spender, this consumer of European luxury goods. And just like they said with the Kennedys, if you're not playing offense, you're going to be forced to play defense. So they got out ahead of it. Specifically, an unknown designer named Oleg Cassini. If you get in the Wayback Machine and you go back to the man, Charlie Knickerbocker, who had named her Queen Debutante of 1947, this is actually just his brother. So obviously his name is not Charlie (laughs) Knickerbocker. Uh, So it was a deal. Oleg Cassini, I'm going to make you into a household name. In return, you are going to make sure that all my clothes are made in America. (laughs) Even if the design is French, you're going to make sure they're... uh, overtly American. (laughs) Even if the design is French, even if the trim comes from Chanel in France, they have to be made in America. So you can do that, right? Oh, like, sure, sure you can. Also, her pillbox hats, Jackie hated to wear hats. And she felt like I need the smallest hat I can get away with. (laughs) That pillbox hat was created by a then unknown milliner named Halston. And she liked it because she could forget it was there. Apparently, the size and the shape of it was good for her big hair and her big head. (laughs) Her big head. That's. I know, but it was it was an amazing style. It, she didn't have to fuss with it; just tack it on and go. And people loved it. I mean, she became 
a style icon for sure. And she sent those designers into the stratosphere. So one personal preference, or I guess in this case, non-preference, kind of changed the fashion world forever. And I'm just thinking of Kate Middleton and friends and those fascinators. <laughs> I mean, that's even a littler hat than a pillbox hat. Maybe it was just too radical. But yeah. you know, remember how everybody out always had fascinators for a while after the whole Kate Middleton thing? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's the same thing. Jackie would have loved those. So back to politics. We have all seen the footage of the Nixon-Kennedy debates, I hope. Old photogenic Kennedy, comfortable in front of a camera. He's young. He's tan. He's handsome. Versus, in the other corner, awkward, sweaty Nixon. <laughs> oh, my. Well, the Kennedys were made for the TV age. Not fair, perhaps, to the Nixons, but... There it is. But if it's any consolation, it's not. They've had more trouble since. But <laughs> um, if it's any consolation to the Nixons, I think a Kennedy presidency would never have happened during the Internet age. There's too much information about his poor health and all of his philandering. I mean, everyone knew her family, his family, their friends, the FBI, the Democratic Party, all of Hollywood, all of Washington, D.C. I mean, the only people in the dark were the general public. They didn't know that Jack Kennedy when he wasn't on stage or in view, walked around with crutches. Sometimes he was in a wheelchair. He was in so much pain. But he always presented himself, just like at this televised debate, as this image of vitality and health and young energy, you know. But the truth, yeah, in the internet age, they never would have got away with that. That's for sure. Yeah. So for TV, in an era where people were willing to sweep things under the rug, JFK is your man. <laughs> so he won the election... And the results seem like a slam dunk. 303 uh, electoral votes to 219. But when you examine the popular vote, this is the closest popular vote there has ever been. Two-tenths of one percentage point. That is close. And Jack and Jackie only knew for sure the next day. No one could even call it until the Secret Service came to surround the house. They had no idea he was the president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack, at 43, became the youngest president ever elected. Although Teddy Roosevelt kind of snuck in as a vice president. So on a technicality, Kennedy's the youngest. Although... Francis Cleveland scooped Jackie on Youngest First Lady because Francis Cleveland was only 21 when she became First Lady. So she had Jackie beat by 10 years. And now we're on the verge of the presidency and some other things, too. So now it's time to take a little break. And when we come back, let us see how our reign begins.
And we're back. Now, right on the heels of the election and a whole month early, which seems to be a pattern, Jackie gave birth to John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. and was still suffering two weeks later from exhaustion and postpartum depression when she was invited to the White House, which would be her new home, by the current First Lady. I'm so mad at Mamie Eisenhower for this. I can't even stand it. So Jackie had had a C-section. She was in the hospital recuperating. And the command invitation was the day that Jackie got out of the hospital. So she went from the hospital to tour the White House. She was told that there was going to be a wheelchair available for her. And there wasn't because Mamie had said, keep it in the closet unless she asks for it. So Jackie didn't ask for it put on a smiley face and in so much pain took that two hour tour with this huge smile. I can't, you look at the pictures, you're like, she doesn't look like she's in pain, but you had a C-section, you know. Well, I was kicked out of the hospital after three days. I don't know that we pamper people after a C-section the way we used to, but I'm not, I'm not discounting the fact that she was in pain. She Mm -hmm. was, and she was also almost more importantly, suffering from postpartum depression, which never during this time period got the respect that it really needs. No, it it hasn't until very recently, I would say. It's a serious issue. And it, you know, the baby blues, they just brushed it under the rug. Oh, you'll get over it. Mm -mm. She had a full on postpartum depression here. So a short four weeks later, she stood on the reviewing stand in her fabulous powder blue suit to watch her husband become the 35th president of the United States. Now, characteristically, JFK stayed out and about and hit every possible party and inaugural ball he could get his hands on. And Jackie retired, exhausted, to bed in the White House. I think she made it to two inaugural balls, but couldn't push further. I believe she only made those two balls um, because of a doctor-administered dose of dexedrine. That seems to be a pattern to throw pharmaceuticals at a situation. So we'll hear more about that in just a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you're the president, you're probably thrown into the deep end of some extraordinarily serious business. But the job of first lady, though, each woman that has it sort of has to construct her role from scratch and face all the criticism for doing so. Now, as far as I know, there's no manual. I could be wrong. I'm not a first lady. Uh, Franklin Pierce's wife, Jane, chose to sit for years and let somebody else deal with it because she wasn't going to. Well, that's not what Jackie did. Uh, So Jane Pierce had one way to go. But what was Jackie going to focus on during her time in the White House? Well, the very first thing she did was lock down press access to the family side of things. They were her little children. They were not sideshow attractions. And she was very adamant about limiting the circus that surrounded them. And so to that effect, she established this preschool slash kindergarten upstairs on the third floor, like a certified like a real school with certified teachers and everything with about 25 kids in it a regular old school i mean there's a class pet for a while that inevitably died just like every class pet (laughs) Um, a dress-up area nap time you know snacks the parents had to bring in i love this so much and she kept Mm -hmm. it mostly under wraps like it's nobody's business If there was a particularly noteworthy visitor to the White House, though, all the little kids might traipse down to see them arrive, or alternately, he or she, if willing, might have been hauled up to the third floor to speak to the children, which is just like, oh my god. 
that's amazing. <laughs> well, she wanted to keep the kids' lives as normal as possible. And Caroline had been part of a playgroup. That was the core group of people that started this nursery instead of meeting from house to house was now going to meet at the White House. That's just the kind of that's how she worked. You know, nothing was slow. <laughs> she had this idea. It's going to morph itself into its culmination as fast as possible. And I want to add that quietly, with no fanfare, this kindergarten had been integrated from the very beginning. You know, I'm sorry to say it was only one little boy, Trailblazer, the son of the assistant press secretary, um, who was African-American. But it was a beginning two years ahead of anything her husband would do in the name of civil rights. So from here, it seems absolutely laughable that this would have been considered a shocking act, mm -hmm. right? To have one African-American boy in a nursery school. But that's some perspective that it was considered shocking. She was also known for her egalitarian ways among the staff too. So small domestic beginnings might create a bigger storm. I guess. So Jackie, in her official capacity as First Lady, had three major threads to her term in the White House. And in each of these areas, her goal was to increase the prestige and the sophistication of America in the eyes of the world, yes, but also among its own people. So let's talk about the first one. When Jackie had visited the White House as a child, she was very unimpressed. When she visited again after the birth of John Jr., she was still unimpressed. She thought the place was in great disrepair and that there was nothing in there that was put there before 1948. All the previous administrations had either given away or sold any of the antiques that were part of the White House in part of those years and part of the history. Her mission was to spruce up the White House and make it a symbol for everything that was great in America and worthy of its importance in the U.S. government. So Jackie was determined that it should be a living museum of American artifacts. And I would like to quote her from an interview when she was just beginning this project. And it really sounds sexist and it's kind of funny, but here it is. Every boy who comes here should see things that develop his sense of history. For the girls... The house should look beautiful and lived in. <laughs> they should see what a fire in the fireplace and pretty flowers can do for a house. The White House rooms should give both a sense of all that. Everything in the White House must have a reason for being there. It would be sacrilege merely to redecorate it. That's a word I hate. It must be restored. That's the uh, Kennedy brand talking because this woman loved history. She had already been doing the research on things that were in the White House before. She'd been studying pictures that were painted at the times trying to find items. And so to say that girls could find decorating tips, that's the brand talking, not her. Well, so the problem was that she did not have any more money because Jackie had spent the whole redecorating budget just on the family quarters upstairs. So she had to turn the Eisenhower's hotel-like decorating style into nice rooms for her children and tasteful rooms for them to live in. That's a problem. Rot row. What are you going to do with the state rooms with no money? Well, she had an idea. She formed a group called the Fine Arts Committee and charmed the exact right muckety-mucks to serve on it to make everyone who was anyone eager to help. Also, she recruited researchers and historians to work for her too. She's not playing around. 
One major thing she found was the Resolute Desk, which had been given to President Hayes by Queen Victoria. It's made of timber from the HMS Resolute, a ship that was abandoned by the British in the Arctic. But Americans salvaged it, refurbished it, and gave it as a gift to England, and it might have been instrumental in avoiding a third war between Britain and America to show, no, no, we can still be friends. We don't have to be antagonistic, and it may have saved some bacon. So when that (laughs) ship was scrapped, Queen Victoria had it made, among other things, into a desk and gave it back to the American people. It is a serious piece of history, this ship. That is exactly the sort of thing Jackie meant. Boom, Mm -hmm. off it went to the Oval Office. Not all presidents since have used this desk, but I guarantee you it's the one you think of when you envision the Oval Office. It is an iconic desk. Well, once word got out, you know, in the press that she was doing this project, letters from people began to pour in. They knew where things were. This item that came from the White House, you know, was at their aunt's house. So Jackie and her team, first they wanted to get it donated. And if they couldn't get that, then they would buy the item and bring it to the White House. She ended up redoing every single room and restored each of them to represent a different era. Like the Red Room was done in the style of James Monroe's mid-1800s tenure. The Green Room was done in federal furnishings of the late 1700s. The Lincoln Bedroom was done from his own Victorian era. So each room had a different theme and a different look and a different era of history in the White House represented with actual artifacts. So more things like that found and installed with a backdrop of almost palace-like elegance and fabrics and trim and people seem to be falling over themselves to be involved in any way with this project. You know, you get things from the attic, you find it in a closet, you strong arm people, you charm people, you beg people. Also, (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't want to tell this story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please do. There was something she wanted, a silver service that was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and she badgered them and badgered them and badgered them and badgered them to let her borrow it. And she planned to actually use it. And the curator is like, "You, that is not appropriate for this. So you're not going to use I mean, it needs to be preserved in a museum. And when he was away, she got someone else to send it to the White House. And she left a note that said, I have your silver service. You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry to tell that story. She she broke brand big time and she left evidence. <laughs> All measures are fair in love, war, and house restoration. I don't really know. <laughs> well, further funding was insured by selling official guidebooks that gave background on the rooms and the objects, which visitors snapped up as affordable souvenirs. That's something else that she was missing from when she took that tour when she was 10 or 11 is that nobody seemed to know anything about the rooms. Well, I'm just walking through these random rooms. Why do I care? You know, she made it an exciting thing to read, an exciting thing to discover. So the White House you see today owes almost everything to the ideas and leadership of Jackie Kennedy. So this project is going on in the background, but I would like to jump ahead to sort of the finale before we move on to objective number two. The project was almost complete in less than two years. (laughs) And Jackie agreed, I can't imagine how scared she was actually, Mm -hmm. agreed to conduct a tour of the White House for CBS television on Valentine's Day, 1962. And an audience of 56 million people 
turned on their TVs to hear the First Lady walk them through the White House and all the rooms that had been restored and all the things in them. She didn't have notes in her hand that I saw or a teleprompter. Mm -mm. No, and it wasn't edited. It was just going from one room to another. And she would pick up a vase, I guess it was a vase, and (laughs) give the history of it. You know, what president had it, what country it came from, how they found it, how they knew that this item was out there from some picture somewhere that they had studied. She knew all this information about all of these items. And it just blows my mind. She started that whole thing in February of 61. That show was February of 62, right? Mm -hmm. I look around my house. I have a wall that's been half painted for three, maybe four. Okay. I think it was five. So, (laughs) But you do not have a committee and you do not have an army of designers and carpenters and plasterers and painters and drapers and upholsterers. I mean, let's be real. I should make my house the showcase of everything that is Wider. (laughs) She was actually described as having a breathy little girl voice and a whim of iron. I like that. Whim of iron. <laughs> I like that too. Even my own mother, when I, I remember years ago, I had asked just some question about the Kennedys and she was still under the impression that, you know, Jackie wasn't very bright because of the way she talked. You know, uh... just that, that breathy little girl voice. Oh, that was really good. Can we talk like this for the rest of the show? No, 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 we cannot. <laughs> so regardless of the opinion of the Wider peanut gallery <laughs> and the Kennedy sisters who wondered where the heck she got that voice from, it was so well regarded by the American public that she actually received an honorary Emmy. So the second focus that Jackie Kennedy had in the White House was cultural. So in addition to turning the White House into a beautiful museum of American artifacts, she also turned it into a showcase for American musicians and artists. The way that kings and queens of old gave their patronage to people like Mozart, for example. She hosted state dinners that were evenings of anything from the opera to the ballet to jazz musicians. It wasn't just a dinner. And if it was a dinner, it was done by a French chef that she hired. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I guess the Eisenhowers were big on coleslaw. There's none of that in the Kennedy house. She changed the tables. There used to be long banquet tables. She changed them to more intimate eight to 10 person rounds to make people be able to talk and have a little more fun at these evenings that could be so very stuffy. So she changed the personality of the White House as well as its appearance. Um, She became a tastemaker and an authority. Art was fashionable again. Class was fashionable again. She was able to use her power to save some architecturally important buildings in Washington, D.C. from demolition. You will also read... Incorrectly, that Jackie Kennedy created the idea for a national performance space. And you could be forgiven for thinking that's true because it does bear the Kennedy name, the Kennedy Center. That was actually an idea put forth by Eleanor Roosevelt, who we have not yet covered 
Although we've meant to like a million times. <laughs> I know. Last, but certainly not least, she was brand ambassador number one for Team America out there in the wide world. So she traveled with her husband to places in South America and Central America where she spoke Spanish to the people and also to Europe. Most famously, of course, her 1961 trip to France where the public and Charles de Gaulle himself responds to Jackie led her husband to say, quote, let me introduce myself. I'm the man who accompanied Jackie Kennedy to Paris, and I have enjoyed it. <laughs> Did he? I'm not sure. There seems to be a feeling that he might have had some sour grapes about that. Yeah, that kind of statement could go either way. Like, whoa, I'm supposed to be the center of attention here, but it's not me. It's Jackie. Well, it was a PR triumph. Absolute triumph. So whatever. JFK. <laughs> On that trip, she had um, always admired Charles de Gaulle. But when she came back from it, she said that she found him a bitter, snobbish man. <laughs> Although she did like the lavish dinner at Versailles. <laughs> I would also like a lavish dinner at Versailles. Miss Jackie. So uh, on a visit to Russia, where Mr. Khrushchev and her husband were at odds, this is the beginning of the Cold War and relations are not good, not good, not good. Jackie actually charmed Nikita Khrushchev into giving her one of the puppies from their space program. So you know what? All hell could be breaking loose, you know, nuclearly. I know that's not a word, but it, I have a puppy from the space program. <laughs> It's an indicator of how she did her research. You know, other political wives might just small talk, and this was small talk, but she had done her research. She knew the United States and Russia were in the space race and how far ahead Russia was, that they had these dogs that they were raising to go up into space. So she mentioned it, and she said... I realized that you had puppies with one of these dogs and it showed up at the White House like six weeks later. That's pretty cool. Well, she, she's making friends and influencing people. And we will talk about the visit with Queen Elizabeth in our coverage of The Crown over on our other podcast, The Recapery. I just want to say the visit to England was not glorious like the Paris trip had been. Jackie Kennedy was quoted as saying that the Queen was quote, heavy weather. But I do want to get into something serious here, which was alluded to in that show. Both JFK and Jackie had been almost from their first days in the White House under, I'm going to put like this air quotes, treatment from this <laughs> quack doctor named Max Jacobson, who everyone in the know just referred to as Dr. Feelgood. So already this is inspiring confidence, right? This is ominous. <laughs> Dr. Feelgood. I'm sure he's reputable. He injected them and other famous clients. I mean, a whole giant list of famous clients with a cocktail of speed, tranquilizers, vitamins, human placenta, steroids, God knows what. Could be detergent for all I know. I don't know. Much of JFK's behavior up to and during the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War in general and Vietnam and the Berlin Wall, I mean, he had a lot to deal with. He was dealing with chemicals of all sorts running through his system the whole time. He had been getting treatments from other doctors for his whole life for his other ailments. So he was already, even before he met Dr. Feelgood, on this kind of toxic combination of steroids and um, painkillers. So enter Dr. Feelgood. I can only imagine what was floating around in his system. Now, I imagine, though Jackie was not as much in the public eye with her decision making, that she was also suffering from serious effects. 
And this also might not have escaped modern news coverage, but 1960s America did not have this information. Um, internal pressure from some of the security services had to be brought to bear to stop JFK from taking these drugs. In addition, let's speak of things that will defy modern news coverage. JFK routinely slept with employees on a sort of schedule. Swimming with one, upstairs with another. It was worked around Jackie's schedule too. And she was in a horrible place. Her whole marriage with regard to this behavior, evidently exacerbated by these shots, which gave him a higher sex drive than he even had already. I know Angie Dickinson and Marilyn Monroe were coming up a back elevator. I don't like all these things we're turning up under these rocks. I mean, <laughs> can we get back to the fairy tale? In fact, you know what? Let's get back to something positive right now. Jackie was also sent as a goodwill ambassador without the president, notably to India and Pakistan, where she took her sister, Lee. Everyone screamed, Mrs. Kennedy, Amarki Rani, which means Queen of America. She could go in all innocence as a friend of the country, while JFK would have had to be stern and official. It was a good strategy. You know, you send the PR arm of the White House, right? The photos are gorgeous. I think the trip did what the U.S. hoped it would do. So Jackie, by being herself, the public curated version of herself, <laughs> I guess I should say, um, raised the world's opinion of the United States and sort of instilled a sense of pride here at home. For real. And I just really wish we had time to get into all that was going on during this. I mean, it was a brief three-year period of the Kennedy White House. And I, I think we just have to boil it all down to novelty and change and progress and grievous mistakes and conflict. And it was a lot. It was, I know. I mean, it was maybe too much for some parts of America to deal with, which, of course, we will talk about in part two. But uh, I can't even fathom the mood of the country and like all that was happening in the world. No. And they were still raising their family. You know, they were still a family unit, even though they were dealing with all this work stuff, I guess, is, you know, they had their work lives and their work personas, and then they still had their family life. You know, they had rented a house in Virginia so she could go and ride her horses and just hide from the public with the kids. And Jack was actually an attentive father. He was very playful with them. This was the sweetest thing. He used to tell them stories and Jackie wrote them all down and gave it to Caroline and she still has it. Mm, that's know. really cute. I well, know. Okay, here's another little story. Not as cute as that one. But evidently, <laughs> he kept a drawer of little toy airplanes and another drawer full of little toy horses. And anytime the kids surprised him, he would hand them one, like a little treat. Cute. And that also, cute. there's a funny, awesome picture of the leader of the free world carrying his daughter's doll sassafras while walking with other world leaders. <laughs> <laughs> it's an awful lot like uh, William and Kate and their kids. Oh, yeah. You know, they're out in public and they're adorable. They're an adorable family. And that's the Kennedys that the public saw. Well, after all those years in the spotlight, Jackie was pregnant again. Hooray, hooray. And this baby would be the first born to a sitting president since I want to say, and the odds are with me, Francis Cleveland's children as the other, quote, other young First Lady, um, anyway, I don't know who, but it, it's been since the 19th century that there'd been a baby born 
to a sitting president. So Jackie decided to take it a lot easier. She limited her engagements. She spent time with the children. She nested. It was, um, you know, protective. She's never had an easy pregnancy and they've never made it to full term. Again, at eight months, Jackie went into labor. Patrick Bouvier Kennedy was delivered by another emergency C-section. He was about five weeks early. He was born on August 7th, weighing four pounds and 10 ounces. Unfortunately, while most of him was healthy, his lungs weren't functioning. It's a pretty common thing with newborn babies. And actually, this is my son had exactly this thing. So I'm I might get choked up here a little bit. It's called respiratory distress syndrome. Now it's treatable. Unfortunately, in Patrick's case, it was not. He was transferred to a children's hospital, which is what they would do today. They put him in a high oxygen chamber. Uh, today, they'd put them on a ventilator. The difference is today, they'd give them a, something called surfactant, and it would kind of work as a lubricant to the lungs and get them functioning properly. That wasn't the case back then. And he died at two days old. I mean, it's exactly what happened to my kid. Well, modern medicine saves a lot of children that wouldn't have been saved even as recently ago as the 1960s. (laughs) So the nation mourned. His loss did energize the medical research community to find treatments for this condition to save future babies. So I guess in that respect, his death was not in vain. His fame was used for good, I guess. That's the only silver lining I can think of. And finally, at last, Jack and Jackie seem to have finally grown close in their marriage. It's been 10 years. I hate that it took the death of their child to do it, but somehow it did. Well, Jack was there, unlike for Arabella, you know, he was out of the country, out of sight, out of mind. But this case, he was there. He, he, you know, he knew what it was like to be a parent. It did. It brought them a lot closer together, unlike how it had driven them apart with Arabella. Jackie couldn't even go to the funeral because she was still recuperating. He had to handle all the funeral arrangements. Both of them um, went through a little bit of a scandal, although one of them was hardly even a scandal. Jackie, to refresh her mind, went to Greece and um, was photographed traveling here and there with a man named Aristotle Onassis. And it was as innocent as it could be. Do you not agree? I don't know. Oh, no, I, it was totally innocent. Lee had been friends with him. Um, she had actually been with him on a cruise when she had heard about Patrick's death and invited Jackie So, yeah, totally um, recuperative. It wasn't that she was running away this time. Um, It was just for her to heal. Yeah, completely innocent. Although public opinion was a little fickle, like, I can't believe the first lady is dancing with Europeans in red pants. And I'm like, whatever. (laughs) You guys are obsessed with people's freaking pants. Um, Anyway, the more seriously, the Profumo scandal, which we will also cover on the recapery, oh, was happening over in England and reached its little fingers over to JFK in America. And let's see, I'm going to condense that to spies, moles, sex and government officials. (laughs) But between the two of them, their relationship seemed to have been, by all accounts, utterly transformed. Their was a respect for her contributions that he'd never had before. Also, more cynically, re-election was coming. (laughs) Um, I don't know. And he said to her when she got back, I need to go to Texas for a little campaigning. And I could sure use some of your magic about right now, Jackie. And she said, I will do anything you want for your campaign. And in her day planner, 
across the dates, November 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, 1963, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy simply wrote the word Texas. Okay, so Texas was going to be tough. (laughs) Then you were looking at a Democratic legislature, Democratic governor. You'd think it would be a slam dunk. Everyone's like, what? A Democratic majority in Texas? Oh, yes, friends. Oh, yes. Texas used to be a solidly Democratic state. But that was the whole problem. You see, the Democratic Party was splintering all over the South due to civil rights issues. There was a conservative side to the party that was not so keen on this racial equality, including Texas Governor Connolly, who was going to meet them there, and a progressive wing of the party that was pulling for change. And if the Democrats could not put themselves back together, there was a real chance that Texas might just turn Republican for good. But as we join the Kennedys on the plane, there's still some hope that some hard campaigning and I guess PR, because, you know, the Kennedys are magic, especially Mrs., can keep the party together. And since Jackie had worked her magic in Europe, you know, we're going to deploy her here. Republicans in Texas were all fired up. Someone had spit on the vice president's wife not too long ago. The papers in Dallas called Kennedy a namby-pamby, weak sister who just rode around the White House on his daughter's tricycle. Like mature stuff like that. (laughs) Nice. So they're not exactly headed into friendly territory um, from either side. The Republicans don't want him there, and the Democrats are in their own sort of pickle. The governor, in fact, wished the Kennedys hadn't come at all. He had advised them not to come, that it would just throw fat on the fire. And he just hated the thought of a motorcade, I guess. All that publicity. Can we not just spirit you from the airport to this luncheon in kind of secret and not bring all these people into the situation? But no, the motorcade route had already been published in the newspapers. Note that, by the way, the route of the motorcade had been published for two days in the newspapers. That is not very wise. (laughs) This was Jackie's first campaign appearance since 1960. She had been pregnant during that election and kind of sequestered herself in a Cape Cod house and worked from there. But she hadn't been in public and she hadn't been in public too much since Patrick's death. So this was kind of like a big coming out for her. But she had become so skilled at social diplomacy that she was going to be a huge asset. She had to go and she wanted to. So come to Texas, they did. There were a couple of events the first day over in Fort Worth. You know, that's Dallas's twin city. It's sister city where Jackie gave speeches in Spanish. Good for her. 
<laughs> when she got off the plane, she had been given a bouquet of yellow roses. Now, the official state flower of Texas is the blue bonnet. But what's the deal with the yellow rose of Texas? It's actually a song in homage to a heroine of Texas lore. Emily Morgan was an African-American who kept Santa Ana, quote, entertained so Sam Houston and his troops could overthrow the Mexican army. Because a lot of people think Yellow Rose of Texas, that must be the official flower. It's not. <laughs> and you know what? All I can think of right now, very unworthily, is Pee Wee Herman <laughs> singing, <laughs> The stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. And I know that's not the song, but for some reason that's sticking no. in my head. So JFK and Jackie had spent a lot of time thinking about her wardrobe choices for this entire trip. Unworthily, again, I think, JFK had the point that all of those rich Republican women are dripping with jewelry and no taste. <laughs> Sorry, mm -hmm. Texas. <laughs> and you are going to show them what a stylishly dressed woman is, what class is. So for the big motorcade and all of that publicity, they picked one of her favorite suits. Hot pink, we'd say now they called it watermelon. Boucle with this navy trim and navy blouse. And of course, the matching trademark pink pillbox hat. She'd worn it many times before. You know, don't get me wrong. This isn't a new purchase or anything. Um, it wasn't as apparent then that she's repeating as it might be now because most TVs were black and white. Exactly. Most of America didn't even know it was pink for almost a year. It was um, from 1961. It was Chanel's collection. Now, it wasn't Chanel. It was a line-for-line -line reproduction from a New York fashion house so that Jackie could have Parisian style but made in America. So the label said Chez Nignon, New York, not Chanel. But everything, the fabric, the pattern, the trims, the buttons were all from Chanel. Winkity-wink, made in America. So... Smart lady, Chanel, to do what you have to do to keep this kind of influencer as a client because she mm -hmm. won't be first lady forever. And then your French name can just go back on her back. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I always thought that was so funny. Chanel just sent all the pieces mm -hmm. and they just sewed it together. And even then, I always wonder because we've covered Chanel before. I wonder if she would have looked at the suit and found things wrong with it. Oh, probably. I want to say, especially after somebody's worn it a few times, I always think about knitted suits. How do the seats of your skirts not get poofy Saggy? where your butt is? Well, I'm sure it's been dry cleaned. Wouldn't that shrink it back? I don't know. I think so. She had worn it six times in public. It seems like something that wouldn't happen these days. So on November 22nd, 1963, at around 1145 a.m., the Kennedys emerged from their airplane. Jackie was given a giant bouquet of red roses. Well, she is America's queen. And you gave her yellow ones yesterday. The mayor's wife, who had given them to her, thought that the red would look nice against the pink. Oh, that's true, because yellow and pink are kind of eh. Right. So the Kennedys and the Connollys, remember that's the governor of Texas and his wife, set out in their convertible through downtown Dallas on their way to their luncheon. And people had camped out 
before dawn to get a sight of the president and, of course, the spectacular Jackie Kennedy and happy the people on the left side of the car. Yay, I win, Jackie, Jackie. Everybody's just screaming, screaming, screaming. And it was a big, giant deal. It was. And that limousine that they were riding in, it was a Lincoln, and it had been flown down to Dallas, especially for this event, from Washington, D.C., and Jack had requested that the top be down so that he could show off his wife. Oh, I know. Service. <laughs> they even stopped twice on the route so that he could shake people's hands. I mean, things that would never be done today. But this might be the incident that caused all of the protectiveness. Do you know what I mean? Like things oh, yeah. are unheard of until they're not. Mm-hmm. Well, it was hot, very hot, too hot for her suit. <laughs> and so it was with great relief that she saw ahead of them kind of a tunnel. It was where the road went under an underpass right before they got to the place where they were going to have lunch, in fact. And Jack kept telling her to take her sunglasses off because she kept putting them on because she couldn't see. It was blink, blink, too sunny. And, and so she's like, oh, come on, shade. Let's go shade. And that's where her mind was when at 1230... Less than an hour after they'd gotten off the plane, they had just turned onto Elm Street when Jackie heard Governor Connolly screaming the word no, 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 no. And Jackie turned to see her husband with this confused look on his face. I really do not want oh, to okay. get into the lurid details of the aftermath of what ended up being two shots fired from the sixth floor of the book depository building. We can, I think we should link you to any number of detailed timelines to go deep on the medical details too, if you mm -hmm. want. But I just think maybe we'll content ourselves with saying that Jackie cradled her husband's head in her lap all the way to the hospital and the interior of the car was covered with blood. I, that image of those red roses mixed with the blood is just so striking in my head. That just keeps sitting there. Now, Governor Connolly had been hit as well, and his wife had grabbed him and shielded him with her body. So both of the wives were holding their husbands, who had both been shot. Connolly, of course, survived, but it wasn't just Kennedy's blood that was mixing on the floor with those petals. And I hadn't realized that somebody else got injured at that point. There was a man, a 27-year-old car salesman who had stopped to watch the motorcade, and there was a shot that did not hit either of the gentlemen in the car. It hit a curb, and a chunk of cement came off and hit this guy, and he was injured as well. Well, I had never heard that before. James Tack, T-A-Q-U-E. At Parkland Hospital, she had to be persuaded to let the doctors take Jack away. They wrapped his head in a jacket. She said to the doctors, you know he's dead. But still, they did take him. And Jackie sat in shock in the waiting room. The way they described the scene there at the hospital of just chaos and hysteria, it reminds me of one of those movies, and I can't bring one to mind right now to save my life, where like one character is sitting and then they have all their surroundings going in fast motion around them. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, ha I have that image. Yes. Well, President Kennedy was pronounced dead at 1 p.m., though, as far as the doctors were concerned, he had been lost since the moment the second bullet hit his head back there in the car. They wrapped his head so Jackie could say goodbye, and she put her wedding ring on his little finger and kissed him and then waited outside the room 
while a funeral home got him into a coffin for the trip back. This is two hours after they landed and she was given the red roses. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that long. And she actually had to convince them to let her see his body after he was pronounced dead. She's like, I've just had his brain in my lap. I'm paraphrasing. Right. Yeah. So this is not going to shock me. I need to see him. And she did. Uh, Well, no one knew who did it. Why? How many of them are there? Are they stationed in every window? Are they coming to the hospital? The vice president was hustled off by the Secret Service for that very reason, because no one knew what was happening. Um, And he obviously is going to need to take over the duties of the president. And Jackie waited for her husband's coffin. And after all of this, I have to tell you the thing that made me sad, because this is all sad. And, you know, sorry, dear listeners, this is not one of those episodes where we banter a lot, because there's just no, well, maybe until section three. Yeah. Because the first two sections of this are just like, what, 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 Mm -hmm. over and over. Well, the thing that made me the saddest was, weirdly, as she left the hospital, one of the doctors had taken a couple of red roses for her out of the trash that had his blood on them that she had abandoned in the emergency room, he came out and he gave her a couple of those roses. And that, wow, I don't know. That made me feel upset. Yeah. I mean, he did it for the best reasons. And I think I would. I think of all the things, that would be the most poignant thing to have. Mm -hmm. But still, oh. Well, on Air Force One, Jackie, and this picture you have seen in this famous picture, stood beside Lyndon Baines Johnson as he was sworn in on an emergency basis, as the 36th president of the United States. I do not know if it was Jackie or if it was a more astute political mind prevailing, but her presence was somehow necessary. It made it better. Um, The transfer of power was more palatable with a Kennedy in the photo. Right. But even then, I mean, the judge, her name was Sarah Hughes, and she wept through the whole ceremony. Because she had to do it. I mean, she had this honor, but the reason she had it was horrible. And he was sworn in on a Bible that JFK used to keep on his nightstand. No one could convince her to change her clothes. Her suit was covered in blood, covered in her husband's blood. No, she said, I want them to see what they've done. And by they, she meant, and she fervently believed it was Republicans who had done it. Or had paid to have it done. Really, she Mm -hmm. really did. She thought that it was to do with her husband's position on civil rights. And the fact that some very right-wing people had paid for a full-page ad with a black rim around it, um, kind of sarcastically welcoming him to the city, kind of added fuel to that belief of hers, that the hostile environment was what caused her husband to die. So... I do believe she was blaming the Republican Party for killing her husband at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. She regretted, frankly, that she had even washed her face before the swearing-in ceremony. There is another famous photo of her exiting the plane with Bobby Kennedy and the sight of her, her freaking skirt, that shut a crowd of thousands of people right down. It was a moment of silence caused by her appearance, and it was a powerful message. Because it did show the reality of what happened. Well, that suit, which she didn't take off until the next morning, Her mother packed it up in a box and put it in her attic for a while. Um, She did not want Jackie to destroy it. She thought that it would be important for history. And so we 
well, not we, because I won't be alive. Maybe some of you youngins can <laughs> see it. That suit uh, has been donated to the National Archives with the proviso that it not be publicly exhibited until 100 years after. That's 100 years after it was donated in the first place in 2003. So not until 2103. Therefore, I'm out. And even then, the Kennedy estate can renegotiate you know, if it is displayed or not. But right now it's kept in its original condition, uncleaned in a secret location in the National Archives. So nobody can see it. And also, no one knows what happened to her hat. No, there's different theories that it flew off when the limo was racing to the hospital. And then I read a couple that she had it still at the hospital and it was gone after that. So it could be anywhere. It's probably in somebody's grandmother's trunk somewhere. Yeah. So estate sales are where you're looking. So there's two missing things we have charged you to try to find. <laughs> that painting that Carrie Nation put her axe through, and um, which is missing, and is probably in a frat house in Delaware. So right. look there. And then this hat, like artifacts of history that are literally someplace, but where? We don't know. It seems like something you'd see on the Antiques Roadshow, you know? This was my grandmother's hat, and I noticed that she was in Dallas, and it doesn't have any value. If it's that hat, it would have absolutely no monetary value to you because you'd be expected to donate it to the Smithsonian for the greater good. Yes. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The funeral planning went ahead, and um, Jackie wanted it based on Abraham Lincoln's own arrangements after his assassination. Jackie had actually started the funeral arrangements on the plane. She had called ahead to the staff to get things going. She remembered those wood carvings during the restoration of the White House. And so she had seen how Lincoln's funeral happened and how the White House looked. And she wanted to emulate that as closely as possible. So that was one of her first thoughts is let's get going on making sure that we say goodbye to him properly. Um, Bobby took charge of a lot of those details because personally, things were going on just about how you'd think. Anyone would be grieving, making sure the children are all right. Grandma had stepped in. Um, their nanny had stepped in. There's a lot of crying, significant amounts of both praying and tranquilizers. Just human grief. Yeah. Now, Jackie had been further devastated, if that's even possible, by being told upon his capture that her husband's murderer was, quote, only a communist. And it's hard to explain this, but it broke her heart even further that his death was not due to something important like civil rights. She felt that at least then he might not have died in vain, but just to have it be a random cockamamie shooter was just meaningless. Mm -hmm. Of course, as time went on, the conspiracy theories abounded about what actually happened. People had a hard time believing that he acted alone. When the Warren Commission gave the report in 1964, 90% of the population thought that he had acted alone. In 2013, only 24% of Americans thought that he had acted alone. That's how many conspiracy theories are out there that are just diluting the story. Hmm. When they were looking for Oswald, there was a police officer, J.D. Tippett, who confronted him. He found him and Oswald shot him as well. And he died as a result of this assassination. So that's a second person who lost their life because of Oswald that day. 
Well, two days after his death, Jackie walked behind her husband's coffin, despite warnings and, frankly, pleading from the Secret Service, Lyndon Baines Johnson followed her. So did Britain's Prince Philip and a whole list of dignitaries. It was worldwide mourning and worldwide bravery, honestly, because at this time, two days afterward, they didn't know if he'd been working alone. They didn't know if there was a whole bunch of people just stationed around ready to pick people off. Mm -hmm. But nobody was going to be seen to not be as brave as Jacqueline Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So that walk, you see that a lot of pictures of her with that dark veil on. That was an eight block walk from the White House to the church. She walked behind the uh, horse-drawn caisson that was actually not only carrying JFK's casket, but it had carried FDR's as well. There was a riderless horse as well with boots facing backwards in the stirrups. What's the deal with that scenario, you ask? Well, it's an homage to a fallen leader. It's supposed to represent the departed man looking back at his men for the last time. Alexander Hamilton, you know, the son of squalor who grew up to be a hero and a scholar, that Alexander Hamilton was actually the very first American to be given this honor. And more history in this procession. Now, what not even Jackie knew was that Black Horse's actual freaking name was Black Jack, the nickname her father had gone by for his whole life. So there's a little meta for you. Oh, yeah, no kidding. That one was weird. Well, little Caroline was so strong for her mother. Bless the children's hearts, I'm telling you. And we all know that famous picture of tiny little John. John, poor little guy on his third birthday. This is his third birthday, the funeral of his father, no less. And his little salute to his father. We've all seen that picture. Kennedy was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. There had been some talk of burying him in Boston, where the rest of his family lay. But Jackie said, no, he belongs to the American people. He should be buried in Arlington. It was also her idea to have the eternal flame at the grave. So these are the details. These are the kind of details that she's involved in, in this funeral, just days after her husband was murdered in her presence. Like, that's the part that blows my mind, that she would have the sense to make all these details. I don't know that I could. But then again, you keep busy after a death. It keeps you going, you know, having things to do. And she was a keep busy kind of woman. I do think she had a lot of help. I know it was kind of marketed that she did all this herself, but she did have a mm-hmm. whole staff. I mean, there was an element of delegation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's have an eternal flame. She doesn't have to go out and find out how that happens. Right, right. She just has to say, it. yeah, exactly. But still important. So the Johnsons let her stay on with the children for a couple of weeks at the White House, because if you think about it, you are instantly removed from office. You're not the first lady anymore. Lady Bird Johnson is the first lady. And technically, that was her house. I wonder about the American sentiment that that was considered to be a very gracious thing to do to let her pack up her stuff for two weeks. But Lady Bird and Lyndon were very kind to her and to the children. And they stayed that way. Johnson made a lot of concessions for her that he probably wouldn't have done if she hadn't asked. So... Yeah. Well, like naming Cape Canaveral Cape Kennedy. Kennedy, exactly. Which she actually kind of regretted afterward. The Kennedys, of course, had sent her in, like, go talk to Johnson. He'll listen to you. And she later said, I didn't realize it had been its name since the 1500s. I wouldn't have had him change it for the world if I had known the history. Mm-hmm. History is very important to her. And so, of course, it's back to Cape Canaveral now. 
So it wasn't a permanent solution, but still, um, yes, he was very accommodating to anything she asked for. Mm -hmm. Definitely. In those two weeks, not only did she pack up her family and pack up her belongings, but she also had Patrick and Arabella's graves moved so that they could be buried next to their father in Arlington. That's another detail that she made sure what happened. Speaking of accommodating, some friends literally moved out of their own house so she and the kids would have a place to live. So she settled in the new establishment, the pressure's off from the funeral, from the publicity, from the trauma, and as nature does to you when the immediate pressure is off, she sort of fell apart. Friends described the inside of that house as, and I quote, an abnormal atmosphere of suppressed hysteria, emotion, catatonic grief that marked Jackie for life. Even in her private life, she became someone extraordinary, touched by fate and celebrity. No one would ever be able to react normally to her again, nor would she ever however hard she tried, and she did try, be able to escape her golden cage. Wow. Well, I mean, she became community property, kind of. Mm -hmm. The second she became a widow, she was sort of owned by American history, I think. And that's Mm -hmm. a hard burden to have for anybody. No, and she had already had that relationship with the American people while she was first lady. You know, she had developed it. So they grieved with her as a country, but personally. You know, they felt they had a connection with her. She was everywhere. Her picture was all over the place. There is a book that I'm going to recommend during the media section that is nothing more or less than a collection of letters to Mrs. Kennedy expressing average Americans sorrow on her behalf for the death of her husband. And it is quite touching. There's notes from little kids in there. They left all the misspellings from everyone, all the poor grammar, if it Mm -hmm. existed, um, from all walks of life, from the shortest note to the longest note. This is a selection of the, I want to say, 35,000 letters came per day. One more major legacy that Jackie left behind in the public consciousness was the myth of the Kennedy White House as Camelot, this rarefied ideal of a place made famous by the Lerner and Lowe Broadway musical entitled, of course, Camelot. It was a place where it never rained until after sunset. It was a place where the winter left obligingly every year on March 2nd, which I'm hoping will occur this year because I am tired of ice. (laughs) After his death, Jackie sat down with a Pulitzer Prize winning author named Theodore White. He had written a book about JFK's 1960 campaign, and she felt that he was the guy to tell this story. And it ran in Life magazine and included this myth of Camelot. Uh, She said, I keep thinking of this line. It's become an obsession for me from a musical comedy. Jack liked to play some records, and the song he loved most came at the very end, The Last Side of Camelot. Don't let it be forgot that there was once a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And she said, there'll never be another Camelot. So we've all heard that. It happened after the funeral. And I should note that that writer knew full well that that was a heaping helping of steaming malarkey. (laughs) But being a writer, he thought also a really good hook. So, putting his principles aside, he decided to go forward with that innocent rewriting of history. That image, I swear we still have today. Thus, everyone's surprised when we kind of blow the lid off the infidelities in the Kennedy marriage. 
Because in our minds, we have been conditioned that this was the ideal brief shining window into glory in the American White House before it snapped shut into war and the Russians and, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) She gave a series of interviews around this time that were so honest in contrast to the Camelot situation. Fueled by drink, I don't know what the story was. You could hear Ice Cube's a-clicking that the tapes of this interview were to be sealed up at her request and not released until the 50-year anniversary of Kennedy's assassination. And they were. And ABC did this special that year, which sort of put her comments in context. We'll give you a link to, well, I mean, they don't have all the tape. They have edited them into a narrative, but she is tart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to say tart. It is not Princess Jackie. This lady on the tape is going to let you know what she thinks. This interview is more like that Dr. Feelgood-fueled insult dinner that they showed Jackie reigning over in the crown. We talked about it over on the recapery. It's her at a table just letting go with her real thoughts. A lot of them were very controversial, especially about women's rights. We look at her now and think, oh, she was a feminist. But if you listen to these tapes, she's very much very old fashioned in these tapes about women's roles in society and in their families. It's yeah, it's shocking. I love that documentary. I thought it was so well done. I strongly recommend anybody watching it. It's a, Diane Sawyer, I think, hosted it. So bad publicity followed Jackie around about a book that was written using a lot of what Jackie had considered off the record, maybe even things from the tapes we just talked about, which were not supposed to be released to anybody. But this guy knew a lot of personal details. Where else could he have gotten them? The controversy over her and Bobby wanting to hold this book back to prevent it from being published, to edit it, to censor it, place the press and the public sort of in an adversarial relationship with her for the first time. They sort of turned on her. There's a weird period of time here when she could simultaneously do no wrong and was an arrogant waste of taxpayer money. I don't know. (laughs) Like people still screamed when she came by and she and her children got death threats every week. So it's a very weird position to be in. So she is no longer a person. She is public property. We've said it before with others. That is a extremely hard, perhaps impossible realm to inhabit. And so Mm -hmm. she moved out of D.C. back to her old stomping grounds in New York. She bought a 15-room, five-bed and five-bath co-op on the corner of 5th Avenue and 85th Street. Most of its windows face Central Park. So this is a very nice address that she's moving into. At the time, it cost her $200,000, which is under $2 million in 2018 dollars. But even that is a steal for what this property would be worth. I believe the last time they sold it, it was like $30 million. You know, she was always nervous about money which to you and me still seems like playing the small violin. She was getting from the Kennedy trusts um, and her children had trust too. So their, um, their income flowed to her for their upkeep, but um, $200,000 a year in that money. So there's a couple million at least coming to her from Kennedy money, but she was nevertheless pinch penny and very stressed out about being poor. Yeah. Well, she was spending a lot of money on rehabbing her co-op. 
you know, she was spending money pretty fast. And maybe for the first time she was realizing that, you know, the buck stops here. She was the person that was in charge of the finances for them. Maybe she just had no realistic view of money, like how we view it, because she's always had so much at her disposal. Maybe it was a warped view. There is some kind of exercise that um, homeless shelters sometimes run or food pantries will sometimes run where they run a simulation where they give you a certain amount of money Mm -hmm. and a certain amount of, quote, time. It's not real time. It's like on a card, like a playing card. You know, you have to spend your playing cards as your time. Mm-hmm. And you have to basically live for a whole week on these criteria that they give you. And almost everyone gives it up. And I almost think every single person in Congress should be required to run that simulation. Maybe they should do it in the House building and see how far they get. I, I think people like Jackie perhaps don't have any conception of what it is. Mm-hmm. I agree. So Mrs. Kennedy, over time, um, did have some relationships with men, largely kept out of the public eye at the request of the Kennedys, the Kennedy machine, I'm going to call them, whose point was that they need the widow figure, which is kind of cold hearted, you know. Mm -hmm. But then she was also, here's another one of these weird contrasts, was seen parading around, I think, innocently, with Bobby Kennedy. Bobby actually lived in the neighborhood. There was a lot of her friends that lived nearby. Her stepbrother, who she was very close to, lived around the corner. Uh, Lee lived down the street. She had some very close friends that lived in her building. And she and Bobby had always got along. They'd hung out as a foursome, you know. Bobby and Ethel, Jack and Jackie. But yes, I can see why, you know, chattering public would go, oh, they're having an affair. Well, not to hearken back to a sad occasion necessarily, but he was the person that was there with her when um, Arabella died. Mm -hmm. Not her own husband. So just a little flashback. When Jack died, he was there for her. So they had a lot of common ground you know, live through these traumas together. I wouldn't think it peculiar. Although I'm afraid to say that Bobby Kennedy had the same uh, extracurricular hobby that his brother had, not in the extent that he did, but infidelity ran in the family, I guess is a good way to put it. Well, but get this though, with Jackie and Bobby, I'm assuming I'm correct on this, we're together every way but physically. And I'm wondering if that's almost worse for his wife than the other. More of a betrayal to be emotionally involved with someone Mm -hmm. to the exclusion of your own wife. So Jackie was excited when Bobby decided he was going to make a run for it for the presidency. I mean, not just, you know, running away and kind of was clapping her hands like, we're going to go back to the White House, meaning the Kennedy machine is going back to the White House. And Ethel looked and said, who's this we? Yeah, well, Jackie was looking for projects. Shortly after his death, after she moved to New York, she began fundraising efforts for the JFK Library. She was involved in the early planning of it, um, the collecting of the memorabilia. She used the skill that she had gained when she was restoring the White House to get money coming in for this project. Unfortunately, it would take quite a while before the actual library open like a decade. There was also a comedic brouhaha over the Resolute desk. (laughs) She wanted the Resolute desk to um, travel with a Kennedy exhibition and the curator at the White House didn't want to let it out of the White House and there was a big battle and it did travel for a little while and it came back so wrecked up and battered that she was not allowed to borrow it again and they had to basically make a replica (laughs) for the Kennedy library. (laughs) 
Oops. Well, you know, she's the one that left a mean note for the curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art after she stole his set of silver. So, <laughs> so life in America was sort of getting intolerable for Jackie. Um, she's the most recognized woman in the world. You can never do anything anywhere without being mobbed. And then... The murder of Martin Luther King hit her again in the same shocking way her husband's had. Again, the country was in shock. Again, the country was in mourning. Again, a man full of promise and hope and youth was cut down. Uh, she did go to his funeral. Well, she had adopted her old pre-Jack habits after his death of maintaining some relationships with high society on several continents. Now, you remember from part one, she knew some people, didn't she? Well, for example, she was pen pals to a personal extent with our old friend Harold Macmillan, who is the prime minister of England. I, they had this really uh, adorable relationship in these letters. I that, that was another thing. I got my mind blown a lot during research on this one. But yeah, Harold Macmillan. I mean, you think about how he is on The Crown. We talk about him all the time over on the Recapery in that context. But to imagine him as the pen pal of Jackie? Weird. You never know how people are going to mix, do you? Mm -mm. Well, one old friend, one of her sister Lee's former liaisons, actually was slowly rising to the top as serious husband material, which the Kennedys, who still felt like they owned her, her image, her popularity, the mythology of Camelot, were very unhappy about. And they would have been unhappy no matter who it was, I think. But the fact that she chose this guy, Aristotle <laughs> Onassis, you cannot be serious. He was a self-made man, sure. He owned an airline and jillions of dollars, <laughs> but he wasn't the most couth of men. He was a lot older than Jackie. He was a vulgar man. He was not our kind dear in every way, but monetarily. Mm -hmm. People will hate this. Bobby is trying for the Democratic presidential primary right now. Can you just not right now to her, mm, I guess, credit? I don't know. She stayed outwardly a good pawn in their game, which I she didn't have to do. No, she didn't. She didn't. But she did. <laughs> well, she got on board with the Kennedy agenda again. And in fact, when she was woken up on June 5th, 1968, she had just been the night before to a Bobby Kennedy rally slash fundraising event the night before where she was the star attraction that raised all the funds. So a caller, she answers the phone. How's Bobby? Said the caller. He's great. Thanks. I know he just won California, said Jackie. No, Jackie, Bobby's been shot, says the caller from England. She didn't know. Bobby Kennedy had been making a speech in Los Angeles. He was exiting the hotel through the kitchen when he was shot three times by Sirhan Sirhan. When Jackie got that call at 4 a.m., she was of course devastated, but it was such a, oh my gosh, this is happening again. But she got on a plane and immediately flew to California where Ethel already was, where Teddy was in the hospital room. They were both, she, you couldn't talk to them. Jackie was actually the person who told the doctors that he was on life support. He's never going to come back. You need to take him off life support. So Jackie made that call. And after Bobby's death, Jackie was 
alarmingly not herself, distraught even. Um, people called her unbalanced. One of her friends said that she kept referring to Bobby as her husband. Yes, it's as if something came a little bit flapping loose. It's as if she could take the one major tragedy and then the Martin Luther King thing, but like she could not handle these two personal tragedies. After the necessities had been taken care of, she spiraled out of control. And I think this was the final straw for Jackie. And she took what I consider to be the extraordinarily bizarre step of introducing Aristotle Onassis to Rose Kennedy, Jack Kennedy's mother. Do you not find that like... (laughs) (laughs) Well, Aristotle had been part of her life for a long time, and he had been courting her for a while, you know, behind the scenes. So um, Jackie was really involved with the Kennedys, so I can see her doing that. That one wasn't really too much for me to grasp. Although Rose's reaction did surprise me. She she was like, okay, that's fine. Do what you must. Yeah, the rest of the family was very <laughs> anti, but Rose thought, you know, you deserve something after all this. I think like, uh-huh. oh yeah, her own mother, it is a tragedy. It is a travesty. That ugly man, that rough, vulgar person just wants you as a trophy. He doesn't love you. He just wants to possess you. And you know what? Jackie was determined. She said, if they are killing Kennedys and my children are Kennedys, we have to get out of here right now. And among other things, Aristotle Onassis had at least $500 million and probably more and private islands. And he could provide her security and he could provide her privacy and a way out of her current situation, which was kind of in bed with the Kennedys at all times. So uh, the announcement went out. Mrs. John F. Kennedy is engaged to Greek shipping tycoon Aristotle Onassis. And the responses worldwide, let's just say, were not positive. So this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life with Onassis was really like. We're back. Since Aristotle Onassis is a part of Jackie's life for sure, maybe we should take a little bit of a look at him. He was a 62-year-old shipping tycoon. He'd been born into wealth, but the family had lost everything during a Turkish occupation during World War I. He himself fled to Argentina with $63 in his pocket and worked his way up. He started as a dishwasher, then a construction worker, then a tobacco farmer. Then he took his money and moved to New York, where he was able to invest in shipping tankers and was a millionaire by the age of 25. 
that was quite a progression from dishwasher to millionaire. Um, he was married the first time for business to combine his company with his new in-laws to form the most powerful shipping company in the world. He had some shrewd investments, a little fraud charge with a $7 million fine. No big deal. Uh, he founded an airline. And in 1956, when the Suez Canal closed during a coup, his ships were the only ones that were available to take the long way round. And his fortunes hit the stratosphere. We talk a lot about that in, over at the Recapery in season two, episode one, Misadventure of the Crown. So here we are with plans to marry this guy. Uh, here is what I'm not comfortable with. He beat his wife, Tina, to a bloody pulp while she was pregnant in hopes she'd lose their second baby. Yes. He cheated on said wife with a famous opera singer and then cheated on her openly with all and sundry for the entire, what, eight or nine years of their relationship pre-Jackie including with Lee, Jackie's sister. He is reported to have boasted to all his friends that he'd won, not won like in love, but beat everyone out to the most famous woman in the world. Like, I am now the most famous man in the world. I don't like that. <laughs> uh, there's nothing about this man that I like other than he could provide her some security that she didn't have before. I mean, physical security on his private Greek island. There is one more thing I like. I'm sorry. There is one more thing I like. He was oh. born in the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> that's kind of cool. You think that's a long ways in the distant past, but I guess not. Nope. Um, his relationship with Jackie actually went way back to when Jack was only a senator. And he invited Kennedy and Jackie aboard his mega yacht, the Christina, to hang out with Winston Churchill. And that's the first time he met her. This is, I mean, this is early in their marriage. So he's known her for a long time. He was there for her after Patrick's death. And um, he's just been a constant, but he's been a constant trying to get her, which I didn't like. <laughs> right. And evidently, people say there was some kind of powerful and mutual physical attraction. I don't see it. <laughs> Uh, okay, that's all I'm saying. I'm going to let that be. Well, 39-year-old Jackie married 62-year-old Ari, as she called him, in a small private ceremony. I guess they're sensitive to world feelings about this. I don't know. On his small private island of Scorpios, like you do on your I, island. That's right. Well, I thought it had to do with security. Because okay. at this time, you know, she wanted privacy. She really hadn't had it. Even, you know, when she was in the White House, she didn't have it. After they left, the crowd still hung out at her houses all that time. So in the wake of Martin Luther King and Bobby's assassinations, I can see why she would want privacy in a private ceremony. Also, <laughs> nobody else wanted them to get married. <laughs> Well, now her children were there and they participated in the ceremony. His children, grown up children, they were there and they radiated pure hate at her the whole time. So that was their participation in the wedding. <laughs> the wedding was Greek Orthodox. So even though Jackie's kids were there, they didn't understand a single word of it. And I don't know if John really remembered his father that well, but how weird would it be for Caroline to have gone from JFK to this guy who is this guy? I... <laughs> oh, yes. my goodness. 
Well, the world lost its collective shizzle, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, everyone had an opinion. Everyone. She'd betrayed the ideals of Camelot. I mean, I call BS on that part, by the way. Um, her husband died. It was not her responsibility to be Queen Victoria, you know, mm. alone forever. That's what people wanted. I don't think that was fair. I don't think she should have married this guy. Nonetheless, it was not her responsibility to keep everyone happy in that regard. Um, Ari was divorced. And so was the Catholic Church going to boot her? Was she crazy? Was she thinking straight? Was she on drugs? Um, I can say yes to one of those. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not saying that she was a drug addict, but she did rely on pharmaceuticals quite a bit to help stabilize herself. It seems like an early 60s scenario, though. Housewives were taking things like Dexedrine to lose weight and to be peppy enough to iron. And, you know, it wasn't mm -hmm. even shameful, kind of. No. Well, I guess I'll join the chorus of disapproval. Not that I have a right to exactly any more than anyone else, but I do <laughs> not understand this relationship at all. There is infinite money, but I just don't know what Jackie was thinking. I just yeah. don't know. I don't either. Even before the when they had decided to get married, um, he gave her a 40 carat diamond ring that she only wore a few times before it went into a bank vault because it's huge. Um, it, her attorneys and his attorneys got kind of got together and worked out a financial deal, like almost a reverse dowry where he had give her like a $3 million, I'm calling it a signing bonus, <laughs> and a trust for her kids had to be worked out before the wedding. Since she had lost the Kennedy Trust by marrying him, he agreed to cover a few years of those trusts as part of mm -hmm. the wedding agreement. Like mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, she said, though, that she didn't want to sign any kind of prenup other than this, because that would be bargaining with herself or whatever. So she didn't protect herself very well in um, financial ways. I don't know how I would describe it. <laughs> well, Ari went back to his mistress right after the honeymoon. Though, to give him some points over JFK, at least Ari was sort of discreet about it. He didn't flaunt the affair in Jackie's face. He only made dates with his mistress through an intermediary and didn't call her directly. He had the lights turned off when he approached her door so no one would see him, theoretically. Um, at least there was an attempt to be discreet. But more heartbreaking, I think, was that Ari talked business with his mistress. She's the famous opera singer Maria Callas, the same woman that had broken up his first marriage, he was still dating now during his second marriage. And he talked business with his mistress, but his wife was not to worry her pretty head about it. Like, not your business. Don't mm -hmm. ask me about that. As shocking as that is, it's not shocking at all. I mean, it sounds like something, you know, maybe a king would do. I'm trying to think of someone that would have done that. Not the wife is just do your thing. And then the mistress is the one that gets all the, you know, intimate details of your life, including business. Well, she was graciously allowed free reign to redo the main house on Scorpios called the Pink House, but Ari hardly even ever spent the night there because he preferred to live on his yacht, his tacky, <laughs> expensive <laughs> yacht that Jackie was not allowed to touch with her renovations and good taste. He had bar stools covered in whale scrotums. <laughs> You guys, that's <laughs> the level. There were many jokes about sitting on big balls. Do you see Jackie liking this at all? 
No, not at all. That that it's a three hundred and twenty-five foot yacht. It had marble bathrooms and gold faucets, a playroom, a hospital, a movie theater. The pool had a floor that would raise up to form a dance floor. It was flashy. Jackie called that pool the bathtub. <laughs> Well, her friends that visited her said that during this time period, she seemed switched off, kind of. Like her body was walking around without anything behind her eyes. She was in a giant fog. She was dripping with jewelry and wanted nothing, materially speaking. And Ari was kind to her children, though I will tell you, he bitterly resented her habit of putting them first over him, her lord and master. He was not very happy with the dynamics of this family. Although she didn't keep them with her the whole time. They continued to go to school in New York. Then they came to Greece for the summer. That was her new summer home. So it wasn't like he had to deal with them all the time. They were only there a short period of time. And for as nasty as her new stepchildren, Alex and Christina, were to Jackie, they actually got along with Jackie's kids. And he didn't deny them anything material either. There was no mistreatment. He did not um, scare them or anything. Do you know what I mean? But nevertheless, he was always um, simmering on the back burner is that she should focus on her husband as a proper Greek wife would and wait on him hand and foot and do as he says. Mm-hmm. She did try to get um, Greekified. Um, she did like life in Greece. She learned how to cook Greek food. She studied Greek art and history. She had long talks with one of his friends about Greek literature. So she was kind of immersing herself into the Greek culture, but not enough for him and his King of the Hill ways. So the press gave Jackie a new nickname, one you all still know, Jackie O, they called her. Must have been very, very surreal to people who had known her as Mrs. Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) But she was almost like a different person than Mrs. Kennedy. Like If you listen to her voice at this time, she's losing that breathy princess voice that she used to have. I mean, it never goes away fully, but um, it's not as exaggerated as it was back then. Well, Ari was described as extraordinarily loud. Maybe he was rubbing off on her. (laughs) Maybe. Well, our Jackie had an able assist in tearing apart the Kennedy legacy. Not my opinion, by the way, um, but the prevailing societal one. The incident on a bridge in Chappaquiddick that caused a woman's death. Ted Kennedy's shame and maybe just maybe accelerated King Joe Kennedy's death. Jackie Onassis slept in a chair in Joe Kennedy's bedroom as he lay dying. So she was honoring the paterfamilias of her, quote, real husband's family. And that's literally how she felt in her heart that the Kennedys were her real family. So what was this other thing? I'm sorry, I'm still hung up on the 10 points I'm giving you for using paterfamilias in a sentence. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 10 points to Ravenclaw. Yeah. Was this all pretense? Was this all surface? I am having a hard time understanding the real Jackie during the Onassis years because it does seem like there might have been a real Jackie operating, but everything else was a front. She tried to please her husband. She tried not to rock the boat. She tried to act a certain way. She, as far as I know, didn't complain about his behavior, which was not 
necessarily very honorable toward her. Mm-mm. It just seems like um, a point in her life where she's trying to define herself. Her public persona is it's not working anymore. She's not that person. She can't keep up that that brand. So what is she? I think this whole time period, I think she's trying to figure it out on his private island. <laughs> Several people had described her face in a way that I thought was quite interesting and maybe full of hyperbole, but also an interesting picture. You know, once upon a time, Joe Kennedy had described Jackie Kennedy as a porcelain doll, and he was worried that she would be too fragile for the rough and tumble world of politics. Well, after Jack died and Bobby died and all the trauma of the previous mm, 10 years, even several friends described her face as having cracked all over in little fine wrinkles. Like if you dropped a china cup and the glaze was the only thing that cracked. Hmm. Like she'd broken, kind of. And I think that seemed like a very on-the-nose way to describe her, but it came from several friends who remarked upon the change in her appearance. Yeah, it's very sad. I I do not have any happy feelings about this time in her life at all. I don't want to say it feels dirty to me, but it just feels embarrassing almost. Yeah, and I think her friends felt the same way, kind of embarrassed by having to include this relationship in their picture of their friend, Mm -hmm. I think. Well, her marriage was falling apart very quickly after it happened in the first place. I'd say within two years, you could categorically call it not good. Um, His businesses were in trouble. Not you and I level trouble, mind you. I think he still has hundreds of millions of dollars. (laughs) But the stress and also the fact that he and Jackie literally had nothing in common was getting to him. She'd try to change her ways, even change herself to please him here at the beginning. And he'd just blow up and just be contemptuous. His relationship with Maria Callis, he decided to go plain old public with it again. How about it? And she went along with it. You mean Maria Callis went along with it. I have to say, although (sighs) their relationship actually seems better like more solid because it's lasted longer and it's obviously based on some type of mutual attraction and it knows that relationship knows what it is. Whereas the relationship with Jackie, she doesn't know what she's supposed to be. And suddenly he's embarrassing her in public. He's yelling at her. I mean, he's telling her she's spending too much money. One time she was talking about Socrates with a friend of hers and he just started screaming, why do you have to talk about such stupid things? Do you stop to think before you open your mouth? I mean, that's the kind of verbal abuse that she's getting at this time. How mm-hmm. dare you talk to her that way? He um, he was so mad and it really got to him that the world thought she just married him for his money. And then anytime the bills came in, that reminded him that the world thought that. And he got madder and madder and it hurt his pride. And it got to the point where she would no longer obey him unquestioningly the way he seemed to want, the way he seemed to portray a Greek woman would obey. Now, we've all seen my big fat Greek wedding. Now that the women are the neck that can turn the head any way they want. So his rosy view of the obedient Greek wife may not have been what he thought it was. But nevertheless, it got to the point where he was demanding more and more unreasonable obedience from her in front of people to the point where at one time they pulled up to an island and he decided that no one was to get off to go shopping. No one was to get off for any reason. Everyone was to just stay on the boat and look at the village. 
And she said, you don't have to go. I'm just going to take our guests and we'll go over there. And he told her, no, splish, splash, off she is, off the boat, swimming to shore. And he was so horribly embarrassed that he didn't talk to her for a week. <laughs> but that was his fault. Yeah, it was totally his fault. And I love the image of Jackie diving off this huge yacht. I mean, we're not even talking like a kind of boat that you would see docked at a very nice yacht club. We are talking monster. It looks like a cruise ship. And she's diving off the side of it. He told all of his friends openly that he was going to divorce Jackie and keep her from getting hold of any of his money. He was kind of obsessed with this now, that he thought she was out for all his money, all his money, his money, his money, his money. This was not even four years into their marriage. <laughs> no, not at all. And he was doing some pretty backhanded things to try and get her to not go after his money. You know, having her sign documents that she didn't really know what she was signing and they weren't really worded properly. It was dirty pool on his part. Well, evidently, he had had his lawyers write up different divorce agreements for years as sort of a torture for Jackie. She had forfeited that Kennedy money on marrying him and was more dependent than was really comfortable for her. Mm -hmm. He actually had some government friends pass a law that would allow him to cheat her out of anything required of him to give her under Greek law. Yes. Mm -hmm. He knew the guys that just changed the law. That's yeah. something else. He wanted to bug her New York apartment, although she was not the one cheating. This is the projection that I don't get. He was all obsessed with the fact that she was, quote, cheating on him. And I don't think during the Onassis years, she ever stepped out on him. No, I don't think so either. So the fact that he wanted to bug her apartment to catch her doing something so he could get out of paying some money was hilariously thwarted by the fact that Jack and Caroline still had Secret Service protection and uh -huh. let his people in the apartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she, Jackie had lost hers, her Secret Service protection when she married him. That was one of the things she gave up. The kids saved the day. Sounds like a Disney movie. Well, Ari's only son, Alexander, died in a plane crash. And there had been a series of disasters for the family, but this was the ultimate, ultimate setback. And Ari's whole Greek family began to accuse Jackie of bringing, quote, the Kennedy curse into their family. It's not just him that wants to divorce her now. His whole family does. Well, evidently, he suffered a giant business loss, actually sort of devastating this time, and was diagnosed with an incurable disease. So maybe <laughs> there is something to this curse thing. <laughs> Jackie was at his side most of the time he was dying. This wasn't an acute disease. It was a um, kind of a long-term decline. Um, but her daughter Caroline had worked on a TV show. There was a documentary and it was about to air over in the United States. And Jackie, the proud mama, wanted to have the crew and some friends for a little celebration in New York. And the doctors assured her that Ari was stable enough for her to go. You know, you're fine. Go ahead. There's plenty of time. So she did. She went. But he died before she could get back to him because the news didn't get back to her that his condition had worsened. His daughter, Christina, was with him and uh, she did her best to make sure that nobody else would come into the room. You know, don't tell anybody else yet. 
kind of situation. So even if Jackie, you know, had been told, she couldn't have made it. So Jackie's non-presence at his bedside as he died did absolutely nothing to improve her reputation in Greek circles. I will tell you that. (laughs) Her reputation in Greece reached absolute rock bottom. (laughs) There was a years-long battle over money. Was there a will? Wasn't there? Was there intent to divorce or wasn't there? Had she signed legal paperwork waiving any right to her husband's fortune? Or was all that paperwork fraudulent and a house of cards? And for someone concerned with her image, her regal and mysteriousness, you know, this must have been hell, I guess, dragging her through the mud over and over with this sword and talk about money. The press would scream at her kind of, I told you this was all a mistake. You know, we told you so. I don't know what you expected. (laughs) Christina had, she's the only one left. So she had taken over the empire and she had had a very flighty life. She had escaped to Vegas and eloped with her first husband, you know, (laughs) without telling anybody. Suddenly she was this hard businesswoman who was making these demands and trying to take up where her father had left off and using his same techniques to uh, manipulate the world, in in this case, to battle Jackie. So I wouldn't be surprised if she was involved in planting a lot of things in the press. Oh, well, now, as far as I know, Jackie didn't ever run Ari down in the press. And if they pressured her to say something, she would say things like she was fond of him and he was a powerful man, similar to the way that you might say your baby is so healthy. I do have a quote that is better than that. This is what she told the press as her final word on this subject. Aristotle Onassis rescued me at a moment when my life was engulfed with shadows. He meant a lot to me. He brought me into a world where one could find both happiness and love. We lived through many beautiful experiences together, which cannot be forgotten and for which I will be eternally grateful. She wouldn't be drawn further than that. Well, and for $20 million, also, amen. That's that's right. So this is the end of Act 2. And what on earth was Jackie going to do with the rest of her life? Stay tuned. We will be back with the rest of the story. And we are back. And Jackie has decided to move back to New York City. It was home. One of the things that Jackie had to deal with her entire life, it seems, but pretty much from when 
her and Jack walked in to get their marriage license is dealing with the press, dealing with the paparazzi. At this point in her life, her image was bringing in big bucks for a lot of photographers. So she was the target and her kids were the target. And the photographer who was the worst at it was Ron Galella. Actually, as far as he's concerned, he was the best. He focused on Jackie. He made her his obsession. He ended up getting thousands of photographs of her over 15 years. So like the JFK Library, this is something that's running parallel to everything else that she does for a huge chunk of her life. He followed her daily. He found out what her routine was, where she was going, where her kids were going. He bribed people to find out where she was. He would interrupt her kids' activities to try to get pictures. He followed her in boats. He followed her in taxis. And one day he jumped out and surprised John Jr. on a bike ride. And that's when Jackie said, I've had enough. You're getting too close to my kids. John Jr. still had Secret Service detail. She had the Secret Service grab him and he was arrested. So what did he do? He sued Jackie. His case was that, I know, his point was that he was protected by the First Amendment to photograph her in public and that her stopping him from photographing her was interrupting his livelihood. That was his case. Mm. Uh, mm, Yes. So she actually countersued for damages and said that she lived in fear of him. Ultimately, she did win and he was required to remain 25 feet away from her. Years later in the 80s, he was still at it. So she sued him again. And what she said was that he had violated that restraining order you didn't mention that I think are important to realize the gravity of the situation. He actually began a relationship with one of her maids once so that he could get closer and get details. Mm-hmm. That is some dangerous liaisons level crap. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And he's so proud of what he did. Oh, yeah. And then he'd said something to one of his friends years after the restraining order. I wonder if Jackie still thinks about me. Yeah, I'm sure she doesn't. There's actually a Netflix documentary and he's on it. And I love the documentary content, except I didn't like seeing his face. And he was just bragging the whole time about this relationship. I mean, weird stuff. But, you know, ironically and sadly, one of the pictures I like the best of Jackie is one that he took. It's one Mm -hmm. where she's kind of breezing along. She just has a little... I don't know, like a little crop top and jeans on and her hair's Mm -hmm. blowing in the wind and she's just walking along looking happy. And he took that picture. Now, there are other pictures of her literally running away from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he called that particular shot his Mona Lisa. I mean, that was a big payday shot for him. That's one of the ones when he was following her in a cab and he had the cabbie blow the horn and she just turned and that's he just happened to get it right that second. I mean, who would be famous, seriously, to that level? I just, it's just... So scary to me. Yeah. So cracks had appeared in the veneer of Camelot. Cracks that had begun a long time ago, but now in the 70s, tell-alls were starting to be written about Jack's romantic liaisons. The news got out about Dr. Feelgood and all the drugs. You know, those 60s and the drugs. Well, this was the early 60s, but still just as titillating. And Kennedy's mafia connections started to come out of the woodwork. So what a time to be out of the frying pan of the Onassis curse situation and into the fire. No wonder she kept a giant basket of those sunglasses by the front door. (laughs) No kidding. They looked really good on her, though. That was like her signature thing. 
So Jackie got a job, her first job since the old woman on the street interviews before she was married. So she was a consulting editor for Viking Publishers. She ended up working four days a week, which if you have never had a job before, that seems quite a bit. And she worked for $10,000 a year for Viking Press. <laughs> By all accounts, she was a very hard worker. People enjoyed being around her and that she was very down to earth. And she was also very good at her job. They kind of allowed her to choose her own adventure a little bit. I worry that Viking Publishers was using her for her celebrity connections a little bit. Yeah, I actually think she got hired because of her connections in the first place. But I think once she was there, she proved herself as an editor. You know, she wasn't just this person that could attract big names to the publisher. And I like the description of her colleagues. They evidently came to work and sat ramrod stiff in their chairs with their fanciest clothes on. Like, what do we do? (laughs) Her best known work there at Viking Publishers was a photographic kind of a coffee table book connected to a costume exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now she got in trouble because famous author Jeffrey Archer wrote a book that was basically a very thinly veiled thriller based on the premise of what if Ted Kennedy was also assassinated? Uh, Even the main publishers like, you got to run this one by Jackie. That's too close to home. She didn't read it because why? I don't know. But she said, just get rid of all the Kennedy stuff and that should be okay. Get rid of it the best you can. Well, so time passed and no one thought a thing of it. But then it came out and the storm broke. How dare you? The review in the New York Times said anyone associated with this should be ashamed of herself. (laughs) of herself yeah Mm -hmm. the kennedys were furious and i'm sorry to say that jackie rolled over on the publishing house she sort of disclaimed any knowledge of ever having seen it and resigned and there was bad blood everywhere i think she was very upset about it i mean probably partially at herself for not having read it and trusted you know the people that she worked with to not do this to her. I know. It kind of ruined up her new lifestyle of having a job and being a career woman. It was not good. Mm -hmm. No, but she bounced right back pretty quickly when she got hired by Doubleday as an associate editor. And there she got to work three days a week and she would eat her lunch at her desk like all the normal people. Uh, She took her summers off. She had been building this beautiful house out on Martha's Vineyard. I think it was 19 rooms on 400 acres. The house is still there. The 400 acres has been subdivided into other properties. And last year, two of them sold for just the land, $20 million. (laughs) That is some real estate. It sure is. It's beautiful. It's up island. And I have to say, I was on the vineyard while she lived there, while this house was here. And I looked for her and I looked for John Jr. And I never saw them. And I was there years. I mean, summer after summer, I looked. You can't even see the house from the road. I know. Sure, you were looking for Jackie. We all know about John John. (laughs) I was looking for John John. Yeah, I mean, he's older than me, but still. He was a good looking man. 
Um, while she was at Doubleday, she edited 10 to 12 books a year, which I think is a good number. That's quite a bit. Mostly she did fiction. And again, like she did at Viking, she got to pick her subjects, her titles. She would pick mostly nonfiction books about art and history. She published Carly Simon, who is her neighbor out on the vineyard, um, children's books. And she's responsible for bringing Michael Jackson's autobiography, Moonwalk, to press. She loved being behind the scenes, though, not having the spotlight on her and working with her authors. Um, she was known to have done more with her authors than any other editor, maybe because, you know, she didn't have the financial pressures on her to get the job done quickly so she could take the time to do it I also properly. think there was a little ignorance is bliss going on, too. I thought about that. I mm -hmm. don't know that Jackie knew that she didn't have to go to the events at the end, the press events. I don't know if she knew she didn't have to hold the author's hand as much as she did. I, I think everyone benefited from the fact that, like a newbie podcaster, you perhaps don't know all the things that you can outsource. And mm -hmm. I, So I think she really took it on. I mean, she was a great colleague. Everyone at Doubleday thought that she was a great co-worker. None of this, you know, she's a figurehead, celebrity, know nothing Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It, she became a member of the family, and I thought that was great. Mm -hmm. No, I do, too. And I think, um, you know, she was able to throw herself into this like she'd done for things in the past. But this is for herself. This is her creating her own life. She was at a point in her life where she didn't need to be someone's wife anymore. And she didn't want to be someone's wife. She wanted to be herself and live her own life her way, not trying to make somebody else look good, which is what she'd been doing. I think this is a side of her that no one had ever seen before. At last, she was using her intelligence in a way she might have been able to long ago if she'd never married Kennedy. I say that, but society was different. It was expected that you would marry, you know. So mm -hmm. perhaps she benefited from it being significantly later in the women's liberation movement <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and the personal growth scenario. But I do believe had she found somewhere to be where she could have exercised that side of her personality, she would be a happier person. Totally agree, too. I just love looking at pictures of her from this era, you know, ones that she knew were being taken. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she knew the power of her celebrity and she placed it very carefully. And um, yeah, the photos of her, she just looks content, I guess. No, right after she started at Doubleday. I don't know, life imitating art or maybe just the Kennedy machine, Teddy Kennedy decided that he was going to run as the Democratic nominee against President Jimmy Carter. And Jackie was brought off the bench back on board for this campaign. But as we'd said, the name Kennedy had lost quite a bit of its cachet and almost all of its power. And Jackie is credited with saving Teddy from the embarrassment of losing New York. But otherwise, his run for the presidency was just a train wreck. Mm -hmm. Well, his name was still tarnished. I mean, not just the Kennedy name, but his because of what happened at Chappaquiddick. He just handled it so unbelievably bad. Who would trust that? Jackie was brought in for another battle. She, in fact, fought battles all over the city for the skyline and the history of New York City. In particular, Grand Central Station was on the chopping block. 
People had already taken down Penn Station, and now they wanted to erect a high-rise where Grand Central Station was. And she and a committee called the Municipal Art Society, who had tried to fight the Penn Station battle without her, they succeeded in getting Grand Central Station national landmark status, which saved it from destruction. And then she was involved in its restoration. I mean, not to, obviously to the extent that she was in the White House. She was part of this group that restored Grand Central Station to I think better than it was ever before. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Her point during a speech in court, she said, is it not cruel to let our city die by degrees, stripped of all of our proud monuments until there'll be nothing left of all of its history and beauty to inspire our children? If they're not inspired by the past of our city, where will they find the strength to fight for the future? See, that's kind of powerful. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so powerful that people outside of New York were inspired to write their representatives, even though they didn't live in New York. They wanted to help save Grand Central from all over the country. So that's pretty awesome. I mean, it's kind of like what she did, you know, with the White House, getting national attention and national contributions to it. She also saved a section of 42nd Street, which is now known as Theater Row. Mm -hmm. And she was involved in cleaning up uh, Times Square. That is very important. <laughs> there was a time in the 70s that you really were frightened to go to Times Square. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I do remember that time. We used to go down to the city quite a bit, and my parents didn't like going there very much. She also worked in other boroughs. Um, she worked on a project in Bedford-Stuyvesant. It's an area of Brooklyn. Um, she helped them to build affordable housing and to spotlight the cultural and artistic contributions of the Black-owned businesses in the area on a larger scale, as in getting local designs featured at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I mean, that's pretty big. I know. I keep laughing, though. It's like, I'm surprised they'd work with you <laughs> after what you pulled. No, I'm just with the, desk, with the silver. <laughs> no, that's right. That was years ago. That was a different Jackie. <laughs> well, and so here she was at last. And I am finally happy. And you'll notice our voices sound a lot happier now. Um, she's got a job she loved colleagues who went to bat for her and a city's history to defend in her spare time. And she wasn't exactly looking for love or even for a male figure, love interest stand in, but she found it in the person she described as her best friend, Maurice Templesman. Their relationship had actually gone back. Like, I mean, like Aristotle Onassis, she had known him since Senator Kennedy days. Um, he was a Democratic supporter. <laughs> he was also a diamond merchant, and he helped grow her $20 million that she had gotten from Aristotle Onassis as a financial consultant to her. Um, it grew it like five times. So you do that math. <laughs> good job. That's a good friend to have in your corner. He was unlike the other two main love interest in her life, except for the fact that he was married to someone else. So come on, we cannot turn the whole new leaf, Susan. No, no. But he was dependable, a quote, very nice man. 99 out of 100 Jackie friends agree. It doesn't seem like great praise, does it? But I want you to think of the contrast. He was protective. He was considerate. He was reliable. He was brainy. He's not going to tell you you're stupid for talking about Socrates. He's going to go get a book down and debate you about it. He admired her mind in a way that neither of her husbands ever had, which is a waste of decades of time. I can just see how 
successful he was after a lifetime of turmoil, starting with her dad. Oh, yeah. He was the most stable, mature man that she ever had in her life. And he was devoted to her. The reason why he didn't get divorced, he had been married in 1946 and his wife was an Orthodox Jew and she just never would agree to it. And they had um, an understanding. And so he had his life and she had hers. They had children together, um, but she just would never divorce him. And I don't think he asked. One of his children, in contrast to Onassis's children, was quoted as saying that Jackie was a surrogate grandmother to her children. Love. I'm making yeah. little hearts with my hands. Goes way better this time. Well, <laughs> ja- yeah, doesn't. <laughs> right after Jack had died, remember how Jackie had started to work towards the JFK Library. She was working on funding and getting items for it. Well, in 1979, it was finally able to be opened. It was a reality, and she had not only helped to get. Jack's materials there, but they scored Ernest Hemingway's papers, and she made sure that that uh, collection had a room of its own in the library. So Ernest Hemingway's papers is in the John F. Kennedy Library, which is pretty awesome. I have Mm -hmm. made no connection, really, between Hemingway and Jackie until this very second when I'm kind of wondering, he liked a bullfight, she liked a bullfight, he liked to hang around super famous people. She likes to hang around super famous people. I'm wondering if they ever hung out. I can't answer that. And if anybody can, I'd love to know. Me too. I haven't, I didn't see any pictures of it. Although, can you imagine like hanging out in Key West? (laughs) I'm pretty sure JFK invited Hemingway to the inauguration. After all, he kind of paraphrased Hemingway's definition of courage for his own book, Profiles in Courage. JFK admired him. And maybe that is why, after all the menfolk were gone, Hemingway's widow donated that collection. And I guess... Jackie, as curator of America's heritage, probably saw it as preserving yet another piece of American history as an homage to her husband. So I guess I can see how it ended up there, but it's just a curious mix of icons there at the library. At the opening of the library, Caroline at that point was in her final year at Radcliffe. John had just started Brown University. He was a history major. And both of them spoke at the dedication of the JFK Library. What a way to honor a father that you didn't really have a very long relationship with. Although Jackie did her best over the years to make sure that his picture was everywhere and that they heard stories about him from people who knew him. Um, What an honor for them to be able to talk at the dedication of his library as adults. Jackie's last big political move really was to support Bill Clinton's run for the White House. She found Hillary to be a kindred spirit. Entertaining and intelligent and up for the task of being first lady, she in fact said, well, America's just getting a bargain because she's worth more than two Helens of Troy. Yeah. Jackie and Hillary became pretty close in those years, and Jackie was one of Bill Clinton's very earliest campaign contributors. Very nice. So at 64 years of age, Jackie began feeling sort of unwell. And after a fall from a horse, one of those sort of accidental discovery diagnoses they're so fond of over on the Grey's Anatomy um, (laughs) happened. And it was discovered that Jackie was suffering from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So she endured chemotherapy, radical surgery, some experimental treatments, and nothing helped. The cancer eventually spread to some other organs. And ultimately, um, Jackie refused further treatment. It would just not add to her quality of 
the remainder of her life. And the news did get out that this was going on. Strangers held vigils in front of her building. Close friends and family came around to say their goodbyes. Jackie made her last confession to her priest. She was surrounded in those last days by all the people that she loved, her family, her closest friends. It sounds like a beautiful way to exit this life. And then on May 19th, 1994, Jackie Kennedy passed away. Her funeral was held in the very same church where she'd been baptized so many years ago. That is a curiously closed circle that Mm -hmm. I am, for some reason, not liking. (laughs) You're not? No, I know to some people that might be comforting, but to me, it's like, I don't know. It almost seems like somebody's a race then. Well, like circle, the end, zero. You didn't, oh. I don't know. I was not struck by that in a good way. And that's just probably just me. I think so, because I thought it was very sweet and it was a fitting place for her to leave. Well, the name Onassis was not mentioned in any way at the church nor at the service near the gravesite, except for the name that is on her headstone. She is buried in Arlington Cemetery next to Jack Kennedy, America's tragic queen once more and forever, and President Bill Clinton delivered her eulogy. And that is the end of the life of Jackie Bouvier Kennedy Onassis. I wish the beginning part had been more like the end part. No, I think almost everyone they interviewed for anything after she died said that the last 15 years of her life, she was a new woman. You know, she was notorious during the Jack Kennedy years and the Onassis years for being maybe snappy, or not as considerate of close friends as she could for cutting people out of her life for what seemed like spurious reasons. She was on tenterhooks all the time because of the Mm -hmm. lifestyle she was forced to lead, I think. But these last 15 years, everyone described her as kind, helpful, contented, always laughing, good for a joke. All of these positive things that said to me that she was genuinely, utterly happy. So you're right. I wish that the middle part could have been cleaned up. Yeah, a little bit. Although she needed the money from the middle part to do the end part. (laughs) It's always something. (laughs) I know it is. It is. It is. Life works out the way it does and we just take it and work with it, right? Correct. Well, as to media. Um, Why don't we start with books? Is is that okay? Yeah. There were so many books for this. I really needed to narrow it down to the ones that I just truly found really important, um, maybe a little bit different, the ones that I really liked. Of any subject that we've covered, I think Jackie had the most materials for us to get information from. Well, let's just put it this way. I am currently blocked from checking out books at the library (laughs) because I have had this teetering stack of material here that I see that you get to a point where they're late and you can't renew online. So you have to remember during libraries opening hours to talk to a person. No, all these things conspire to make it so I cannot renew them. And then they just think they're lost. And so now (laughs) they think, I don't know, 27 things are lost. They're not lost. They're right here. (laughs) And they'll be at the library very soon. Here you go. (laughs) I feel bad, but it's just my process. (laughs) 
Do you want to start with a kid book? I have a good one called When Jackie Saved Grand Central, the true story of Jacqueline Kennedy's fight for an American icon. I thought this was so charming. It was adorable. I, I highly recommended that one. It's written by Natasha Wing, illustrated by Alexandra Boiger. B-O-I-G-E-R. Um, we had already talked about this one, but we both strongly recommend that you read Letters to Jackie, Condolences from a Grieving Nation by Ellen Fitzpatrick. She had received 800,000 letters in the first few weeks, 1.5 million in the first year. This is 250 of those collected for you to read in their entirety. And it's so touching. It's such a good way to look at how America viewed the death of Kennedy. I opened this at random. I just want to read this because it's so touching. Everyone wrote to her as if she were their friend and wanted to express their deepest sympathies. Now, this goes on and on and on. This is a very long letter. But the very first part says, Dear Mrs. Kennedy and children, excuse me for writing a letter, but I don't have a sympathy card and I live 18 miles from town. And being 71 years old, we don't have no car and I don't get to Clarksville very often. But I want to tell you, I loved President Kennedy dearly and his death has hurt me so deeply I can't eat or sleep. When he would appear on my TV screen, his presence and that wonderful smile would brighten up my home so much. How I will miss him. No one but me will ever know. And this book is full of letters like that. Yeah, it's a good one. Actually, if I was going to buy any of these books, that's the one I'd buy. Um, as to coffee table books, you can take your pick. There are a many of them. The coffee table book that I liked is something that we touched on a few times, but I don't think we gave it a lot of attention as Jackie probably would have. Um, it's called The Private Passion of Jackie Kennedy Onassis, Portrait of a Writer by Vicki Moon. It's photographs from 1938 to 1989 of Jackie and her horses. And they did such a beautiful job of keeping the color consistent through a lot of the book. It's just these beautiful CP. Oh, it was, and I'm not like a horse person. This was, if you're a horse person, this book is gorgeous. Also kind of random. I was noticing <laughs> that okay. any aspect of Jackie's life has been turned into a major work. There is a book that I checked out that is simply the year she left Greece to move to New York. There is a whole entire biography based on just that year. Mm -hmm. I had one that was the whole of last year of Jack and Jackie's marriage. Niche journalism is alive. I know there was one book that went into how she liked her potatoes cooked or something. And I thought, my friends, we have crossed a line. <laughs> <laughs> that funny. is very interesting. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There so is a book that came out um, just at the end of our research for this. So I did not read it. It's um, Janet, Jackie and Lee. It's a brand new book by J. Randy Tabarelli, and I like the cover. I would have picked it up. <laughs> the main biography, straight biography that I liked the best is one that I actually bought, um, America's Queen, The Life of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis by Sarah Bradford. <laughs> yep. Actually, I bought two copies of that. I bought it on audiobook, and then I wasn't reading it fast enough on audiobook, so I bought it for my Kindle. There is another biography that is extremely detailed. It was probably the largest book that I had. It's called A Woman Named Jackie by C. David Hyman, and it is very thorough. If you like your biographies to go into a lot of detail instead of just telling the story, that's the book for you. And we put these all on our show notes, so if you... You don't have to remember them. There's a lot of books here. 
Yes, books. Let's put that to the side. We've covered that. Movies, TV adaptations, there are a plenty. So I'm just going to focus on the person that I thought played Jackie the best, maybe the best adaptation, and the uh, industry seems to agree, as this one received many, many awards, including a BAFTA. Um, Jackie, simply Jackie, with Natalie Portman. And um, I thought Natalie did a great job with the accent. I mean, it's so hard. That's where a lot of people, a lot of actresses lose it, I guess. Um, And I thought her portrayal of her was great. It's really just focuses on the assassination up till the funeral. So like all those little books that dealt with a year, this deals with a month. (laughs) So it includes the conversation that she had with a journalist. It's not the journalist isn't named in the movie. They just call him, quote, the journalist. Um, But they go back through all those conversations to look at their life together, but it was just right in the aftermath of his assassination. Don't miss that documentary that ABC put together in 2011 that is based on all those tapes that Jackie recorded and then had held back for 50 years. So there, you know there's some juicy stuff in there. There is. It's called In Her Voice. It's hosted by Diane Sawyer, and it is on YouTube, so I can embed it right on our show notes. So you can go right to the show notes and um, watch it. I thought it was really good. Um, There is a documentary that's on Netflix. It's called Jackie, A Tale of Two Sisters, and it's telling the stories of Jackie and Lee Parallel. And that's the one that has a lot of Ron Galella in it. The content was great. And then there's Ron Galella. So if you can tolerate watching (laughs) Ron Galella, um, it's a brand new documentary, well, 2017, and it's on Netflix. So I thought it was really good, except for him. (laughs) You know, that actually does make me kind of sad that we couldn't didn't have time really to focus on Lee. She has a very interesting life. So I'm glad you can catch up with her on that documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She had a lot of chapters to her life too, didn't she? Oh, yes. So I have a, what I consider to be an extremely special piece of audio. I mean, there's a static picture. It is an audience of the Boston Symphony and it is taped live from the moment the conductor turns during a symphony concert to inform the audience that the president has been killed. You hear the audience in shock. You hear the sadness in his voice. There is a pause while proctors are handing out music to each and every orchestra member who has just found out what happened. And then together they play a requiem for John F. Kennedy. Oh my gosh. I didn't listen to that. And I've got chills. Because they were taping the symphony concert for other purposes, they caught that moment. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, the JFK Library, um, there's a physical and a cyber version that you can visit. If you're in Boston, you can visit it. If you're not, you can go online and we'll give you a link to that. And the National First Ladies Library and Historic Site in Canton, Ohio. Again, there's a physical and a cyber version of it and we'll link you up. I did not know that even existed before this. I didn't either. Thank you so much. I was like, did we miss this sometime? Yeah. Canton, Ohio. So somebody that lives near Canton, Ohio, you should go and do a uh, field report. Yes, please do. I would love to hear how it is. I don't think I'll be getting to Canton anytime soon. Also, in late breaking news, our friends at the Bowery Boys podcast just yesterday, as of this recording, released an entire episode on the salvation of Grand Central Station, including an interview with a man who worked with Jackie Kennedy on this project. And last week, they sent out a show covering the unfortunate destruction 
of its sister landmark, Penn Station. It is absolutely perfect timing for a companion piece after you've listened here to Jackie. You can listen to both of these shows at their website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, or we recommend subscribing to the Bowery Boys on your favorite podcatcher. Also, if you're interested in this sort of aspect, there are both timelines of assassination and medical details available to you. We didn't want to talk about them in too much detail, but um, we will give you links if that is your thing. That will do it for our coverage of Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And in closing, we are going to leave you with some words that Kennedy Presidential Advisor Clark Clifford once wrote to Jackie. Once in a great while, an individual will capture the imagination of people all over the world. You have done this, and what is more important, through your graciousness and tact, you have transformed this rare accomplishment into an incredibly important asset to this nation. Jackie Kennedy was a real person who has become an icon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! It has become extraordinarily easy to leave a review for the History Chicks on your iPhone. That's what I have in my hand, and I can't really speak to Android users. We're going to have to ask Susan. But on your podcast app, just search for the History Chicks, tap on our logo, tap on the word reviews, and right there it says write a review. So if you have a few minutes and feel so inclined, we would love for you to write a review. It really helps us reach more people. Thanks a lot. The end song is The Most Popular Girl in the World by Ari Shine, courtesy of music.mevio.com.
As promised, if this is your thing, you can wait for muffler shops to open in the morning and take your car in. <laughs> well, I have one going down my street right now, too.